welcome to another Comic Source Comic Boom collaboration. This is your DC Comics for the week of May 16th, 2023. Big week. We have a couple of series, or one one series debuting, I guess, with uh, Batman, Brave and the Bold, long time coming. Well, I guess two, because Titans as well. Uh, and Vigil, I forgot about Vigil. And Cyborg. So yeah, tons of debuts. Yeah. Uh, winding down on Black Adam. World's Finest continues to be really good. We're building up to uh, Wonder Woman and Flash, both hit both about to hit 800. So I thought it was a solid week overall. Not, not too exciting. Honestly, some of the books were, you know, they weren't bad quality, but they didn't blow me away. They weren't really anything that I wasn't expecting, I guess you'd say. So I don't know. How'd you feel about it, Rocky? I was, uh, there was only two that I really enjoyed that, that this week. Uh, that was uh, the Flash and the Vigil, and uh, actually, I, I like Superman. I thought it was kind of fun, and and the rest were varying degrees of meh. And uh, there was one big disappointment. So, uh, but um, curious to hear your thoughts on some of them. So, uh, yeah, let's let's get let's get to it. Yeah, kicking it off with Batman, Batman, uh, Superman, World's Finest number fifteen. I can't believe this book's up to number fifteen already. Uh, written by Mark Wade, Dan Moore is the artist, Tamara Bonvillain on colors, Steve Wands on letters. It's elementary. Chapter three, Ultramorpho, who we met last issue. He's kind of uh, an evil version of Metamorpho, if you will. Metamorpho who can transform his body into any Earth elements. Uh, Ultramorpho can transform into any elements, even alien elements, including kryptonite, which is how he kind of put Superman on the back foot last issue. So um, (laughs) we get a lot of villains, uh, we find out the big bad who's sort of behind everything here, getting a lot of, of new versions of villains. We're also getting a lot of sort of classic DC characters, DC characters in the past who've been sort of forgotten. Mechanique shows up here. Uh, Kemo makes a brief appearance. And then the big bad is somebody new. So I love what Mark Wade is doing in terms of taking DC lore that's established and maybe kind of lying around. I mean, yeah, Doom Patrol is being used now um, and they have their own series now, but you know, he, he was, he's using more, Mark Way's using more of the classic Doom Patrol, which I like. Uh, Mechanique is somebody that we haven't seen in, in a long time. The, um, the metal men, you know, they don't show yeah. up that often. So. Challengers of the unknown too. Yeah. Challenger of the, uh, of the unknown. So, there, they are these characters that Markway's using that that lean a little more toward the adventure side, the pulpy side of DC, uh, rather than the true superheroic side. But obviously, mix them in, mixing them in with Superman and Batman. So I almost feel like, in a way, you know, World's Finest back in the day was a title that ran from the Golden Age all the way up. I think it ended when Crisis started in 1985. And it was in the 300s, uh, maybe even the 400s when it ended. And it was just called World's Finest, right? And, and back in the day, it wasn't uh, even a Superman-Man team-up. That's what it became and was that for decades. And it was just called World's Finest. And then when they, there was thoughts of bringing it back and it was Superman-Batman, we had Michael Turner art on that. And then the, the last couple of iterations, it's been Batman-Superman. And we know why, right? Because now it's in the Batman section. Now it has Batman, at, you know, listed first as the title. Batman is what pays the bills over at DC. But at the end of the day, I almost feel like Batman and Superman are a little bit of an afterthought in this book. We know Mark Waid has wanted to write Superman for a long time, and this is not that. 
this is not what he would do if he had a regular Superman book. At least I don't think it is. And that's not to say that he doesn't do them justice because I like the characterization and the interaction he has between the two characters. But it is in a way almost like this book exists for the guest stars, for who Marco Aid can bring in, for the overall tone of it, for the stories that he can tell mining the lore of DC. And I'm all for, I'm all for that because there is no Challengers of the Unknown book. There is no book with Metamorpho in it. There is no up, – up until recently, there was no Doom Patrol book. And even, like I said, the, this Doom Patrol version that we're getting here is the classic Doom Patrol. And n- nothing against what Dennis Culver is doing because I'm enjoying that Doom Patrol book so far. But I I like seeing the classic Doom Patrol with Negative Man and with Elastigirl and with Robot Man. Like that's the Doom Patrol that I know and that I love. And so in a lot of ways, I wouldn't go so far as to say this is fan service from Mark Wade, but in a lot of ways, this is almost uh, like a, a thank you, maybe, to uh, to longtime DC fans. You know, fans who know these characters, who know um, the DC lore, who know the DC history, who don't get a chance to see these characters that often. And not only do we get to see them, but they're in a fun story. They're in a, a, a story that's filled with adventure. And Mark Waid is doing awesome things, like building Batman armor that's like made out of the the uh, metal men. It's almost like a Batman Voltron crossover here where each one of his limbs is one of the metal men. It's just a lot of fun. And the Dan Mora art is fantastic. I don't know how long we're going to have Dan Mora on the art duties because we know that he's uh, drawing Shazam also with, with Mark Wade now. So I don't know how far ahead they got on world's finest. I mean, I would hope they both continue on both titles, but that's probably not feasible. But anyway, I, I say all that to say this is just a lot of fun. And, you know, this is only part three of this elementary story. We The mystery is sort of solved here. Who, who, the, the supposed murder of Simon Sag, we found out it was a simulacrum. It wasn't a real Simon Sag. But that, like the mystery of it seems so far in the past now. The story has has moved so far past that and become something else. This big over-the-top adventure. And that's another thing I love Mark Wade for. Too often in comics, and I've specifically we said with the Red X storyline, um, and it's happening in Amazing Spider-Man as well. The, the, these writers drag these mysteries on so long, and they shove it in your face that you don't know what's going on. There's a mystery. You don't know what's happening. We we've only dropped a hint or two here or there. You don't have enough context to understand what's going on, and they drag it on and on and on. And it gets to the point where it's annoying. Like you're shoving this mystery in our face, haven't bothered to tell us what's going on. But Matthew Rosenberg, reminded, Ed Brisson. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it, it happens too often. Mark Wade's like, nah, two yeah. issues, you're going to get the answer and we're going to move on and the story evolves. And yeah, it, it, this is just a lot of fun. So yeah. uh, what are your thoughts on Rocky? Well, it, it, like I said, it's it, it's a lot of fun. Mark Wade is just very good. Here's what Mark Wade has over uh, most of the writers at DC is he under he he doesn't. There have been other writers at DC that have tried to introduce classic characters. I think of probably a, the the I think of an example like the Clunrads over in Wonder Woman. They tried to introduce a back uh, a bunch of old Wonder Woman villains in in their comic, but they completely squandered it because the villains they didn't know what the villains they they really didn't know what they were doing. 
They didn't know anything about the history of the villains. They were just puking them on the page. They served no purpose. It was forced. And it was, uh, it, it, it came across as pretentious because they really didn't know what they were doing. And it didn't fit the story at all. And they were just afterthoughts. Mark Wade actually knows the characters. He knows the classic characters. He knows them. He knows how to write them. He knows their voices. And it shows. It does matter when you have a lifelong experienced comic book writer writing these stories. And there's a reason why World's Finest is one. Uh, well, it, it should be selling better, ironically enough. But, I mean, it's, it's, there's a reason why it's, it's, it's getting a lot of fan service and a lot of fan praise. Same thing with Jeremy Adams. DC, are you listening? Are you seeing a pattern here? People that have passion for the characters, take their time, write the characters. They get they get a good word of mouth and and I love this. This is uh this ultramorpho. Uh, I love it. it's it's a, it's a new take on uh, you know we thought you know, metamorpho was being set up. But we thought uh, the murder of Simon Stagg. Uh, this this uh, this new this new Mazo character. This new Mazo character has this sort of this other sort of simulacrum ultramorpho. Uh, that he's controlling to set up, uh, to use a, a clone version of Simon Stagg, setting up Batman, setting up Metamorpho, and, and basically all the, all the robots, anything robotic on the planet is being controlled by Numazo, basically Amazo 2.0. And that allows Mark Wade to bring in the Red, Red Tornado and Chemo and uh, Ultravic and Mechanique and, and uh, show adventures of challenges of the unknown to bring in and, and to really, uh, uh, to really have fun with the DC universe. Cause the DC universe is a fun place. It's got cool characters, fun characters. I mean, even people, a lot of people forget the challenges of the unknown were the original Fantastic Four, uh, but they've been forgotten about. There's a lot of fun in the DC universe. Mark Wade under- understands that. By far the most fun part of this issue, it's a future to- Todd. It's a future Todd McFarlane McFarlane toy action figure. It's Batman with the Metal Men forming different parts of his armor as he does battle against uh, Numazo. I mean, it's just it's just fun. It's awesome, and it's uh, you know it's 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 really it's really good. I mean, we got we got Dick Grayson teaming with Metamorpho, uh, struggling uh, because uh, Batman and, and Superman end up being taken away by uh, uh, Ultramorpho, and then they have to fight Numazo. And so Robin and, and Robin and uh, Metamorpho have to figure out a way to work together. And uh, meanwhile, uh, all the heroes of the planet are, are busy fighting these insane robots that have gone insane uh, all over the planet. And so Robin can't get the Teen Titans to help him. And so he's he's basically left to his own devices. And uh, so ultimately are Batman and Superman who've got inhibitor collars put, put, uh, wrapped around them. And they come and they discover that uh, this new Mazo has Professor Ivo, Magnus, Dr. Cyber, Toy Man, and even the Bug-Eyed Bandit, all these, all these individuals who are... Are masters of robotics are basically teamed up. I mean, and this is it. This is as you said. This is only the third issue, and we're getting all of this substance in this fun comic book. This is the way you do it, and this is why Mark Wade's on his A game right now. This is a real fun comic. Again, we've we're not the only ones who've said this. If you're not reading World's Finest in DC, you're crazy. So yeah, uh, high praise to World's Finest this week. Yeah, and here's the other thing about it. You know, Mark Wade coming up with this. Uh, you know, Amazo being a classic DC villain, this new Mazo, uh, Amazo no, if you will. This is a good idea. This is an interesting idea. This is, you know, as much as I'm saying praising Mark Wade for going back and mining DC lore, it's not like he's not creating new characters as well and, and characters that, and concepts that are sort of a natural progression of what's there already. 
You know, why, why haven't we gotten an Amazo 2.0? Well, now we have new Mazo. So let's see what he has in store for, uh, for Batman, Superman. It's, it's not anything good. I'll tell you that. Yeah. Definitely. <laughs> Uh, all right. Up next, we have the penultimate issue of Black Adam, issue 11 of 12. This is from writer uh, Christopher Priest. Uh, the art in the book is by Eddie Barrows. Eber Ferreira handles the inks. Matt Herms on colors. Willie Schubert on letters. Uh, the framing technique, Black Adam, uh, Teth Adam is, is in a confessional talking to a, an old friend. He's like, oh, even though I'm not Catholic. And it's used as sort of a framing device. Um to talk to kind of explain what's going on with these Akkadian gods. Um, it, it works well to kind of set up the final issue, if you will. But I have to say that if you haven't been following along um, with what's been going on, that you'll, it, it's, the, Christopher Reese is not spoon feeding it to us, right? Like he is recapping and is reminding everybody of what's going on. And as I said, setting up these various gods, uh, uh, these Akkadian gods that uh, that Black Adam apparently created back in the day when he was first flung out to the far reaches of the universe. Uh, but this isn't, you know, any by any shape or form, new reader friendly. Um, but much like Mark Way, like we we're just talking about, Christopher Priest is going back and not only mining from his own story. There's lots of editorial notes in here that say, "Hey, go back and see issue three. Go back and see issue five. So he really is tying everything together. Um, but we also see Sargon the Sorcerer, who's a, a classic DC character, show up here. Uh, he looks recognizable as Sargon, but a, a little bit updated. Uh, I think the artwork by uh, Eddie Barrows is fantastic in this issue. The color work uh, by Matt Herms is great as well, especially Sargon. He's got this reddish hue uh, over him. So I thought it was really good. I'm looking forward to reading this all together in one sitting because, as we've said all along when it comes to Christopher Priest stories, reading them in a, in a big chunk is kind of a whole story, self-contained, usually works a lot better. Um, and sometimes that's tough to do, right? Because sometimes he'll do like a 25, 30, 40-issue run, and it's it's really hard you know, to digest that all at once because uh, his storytelling is often not linear, and it does call – call back a lot of times it jumps around through time uh, and you know this is no exception as i said in this particular issue there's a lot of callbacks and references to things that happened um previously but we're teased that next issue in the series finale we get a blacker adam so we'll see how this all comes together we'll see kind of what the state of uh, of black adam is coming out of this um you know rocky and i both mentioned what you know this sort of debuted right around the time the, the black adam movie from was hitting theaters, and we know that ultimately that didn't go over too well, even though Rocky and I both really enjoyed it. It didn't really resonate with fans. But there was there's enough here in this series that calls back to that, that it, it does feel like somewhat of a companion piece. But at the end of the day, like we said from the beginning, asking Christopher Priest to write Black Adam, for a comic book fan that knows the lore, it's fantastic. But for a new reader jumping on, wanting to – have an accessible Black Adam story. This wasn't it. That being said, for somebody like myself who is more versed in DC lore, this is going to be something that kind of stands on its own and really um, probably sets Black Adam up as sort of a new status quo. And it maybe didn't explore the um, motivations 
of Black Adam enough. They're they're hinted at rather than really explored in a in a like really a cohesive way. You kind of have to read between the lines, at least so far. It's entirely possible that by the time we get to the end of the last issue, it's a little more clear what the motivations are. Um, what's been most interesting for me is to see the struggle that Black Adam has to try to find a way in the modern world to fit in. There's a lot of hints about the political upheaval of Kondek and where Kondek stands in, in the you know political landscape of the DC universe and how Black Adam is struggling. And all that's really interesting, but it's all subtextual and, and it requires a lot. Christopher Priest is asking a lot from the reader to try to make sense of that and make sense of who Black Adam is when he's struggling to, to see where he fits in a modern world because this guy is, is thousands and thousands of years old. His sensibilities aren't necessarily modern sensibilities. And, and that's where a lot of the conflict comes in. Um, so all that is really interesting. But again, you're, he asks a lot of the reader. And uh, I hope it pays off in the end. Um, but again, this is one of those things, just like his Deathstroke run, where there's going to be those that love it and those that are like, man, this is just too much work to really understand and get the most out of. So, uh, But regardless of whether or not you're getting the most out of the story, there's no denying that the art is fantastic. There's a lot of action in this one with Black Adam fighting uh, uh, various members of the, uh, the Akkadians, uh, whether it's their God of War or, like I said, Sargon the Sorcerer shows up. And uh, that, that is all rendered fantastically by, uh, by the art team. So uh, what, what are your thoughts on it, Rocky? Uh, well, it's very important that people understand that uh, I'm going to be a little bit uh, – I'm going to be a little harsh on Christopher Priest, but then I'm going to give him a compliment. This is actually kind of a cool story. It's kind of a cool origin, but it is new. It's very new. This, this sort of revamps the mythology of Black Adam. And here's it in a nutshell. When Black Adam was banished 5,000 years ago by the wizard, he was wonder, He was banished to the far reaches of space. And there was sentient space dust. There was cosmic dust that Black Adam breathed in and gave it sentience, gave it life. And that space dust became the Arcadian gods. The Arcadian god of war, this Nergal, and this uh, the goddess, the Arcadian god of love, this Ishtar, who in this issue, or at the end of last issue, pose- uh, possessed uh, Jasmine, who is Malak's love interest, and and wa- and kisses Black Adam. So Malak now is angry at Jasmine, and Jasmine uh, was possessed by the goddess Ishtar, and so Malak's pissed off at Black Adam, pissed off at Jasmine. Meanwhile. Uh, Black Adam is telling this story. And what has happened here is Sargon the Sorcerer is actually mind controlled by the Arcadian, the Arcadian gods, whatever. And he's, he, he's wearing this mask. And anyone who wears this mask, the same mask that is most easily seen at the end that is actually on Black Adam, whoever wears this mask, you become the servant king, uh, you, you become the servant king of these Arcadian, of these Arcadian god, Arcadian gods. And, and that's why the, the goddess Ishtar, she, who loves Black Adam, she wants Black Adam's love. She wants to control him. These Arcadian gods, they want Black Adam to wear this mask because wearing this mask uh, will will basically – you're in control. Uh, well, you, you're, you're the servant king. You have you basically – you're serving all these Arcadian gods. And what's interesting about that is uh, the initial plan was to use Sargon, uh, Sargon to attack Malak. And to the, at one point, uh, Sargon, who is possessed and doesn't know what he's doing, tries to get this mask on Malak. Black Adam shows up, prevents that from happening, manages to, in his battle with Sargon, uh, 
disrupt the mind control that Sargon's under. Sargon then uh, gets his wits about him, tries to help out. He separates the spirit. He separates Teth Adam from the from Black Adam himself. And so he's sort of in a spirit form, a metaphysical form. And so we have Teth Adam in a, meth- in a mystical, metaphysical form, while the physical embodiment of Black Adam now wears the mask and is under the control of the Akkadian gods. He's now the servant king of the Akkadian gods. And undoubtedly, it's going to be Sargon the sorcerer uh, who's regained his wits about him and Malak who will do- be doing battle. Malak the white Adam doing battle against a mask Arcadian possessed Black Adam in the final issue, next issue. This is kind of cool. I kind of like this. I had to reread this a couple times, but I got the gist of it. It's, uh, you know, I think it's a it's a little bit confusing. I, as you said, we talked about how he frames and structures his stories. And if you're a longtime fan of Christopher Priest, or even if you're not and you're just familiar with him, you either like it or you don't. But for the most part, I'm glad I stuck with this series. I think it's going to be an interesting payoff. I like Malak. Uh, Malak's grown on me. At first, I thought he was an annoying character, but he, he's become more likable since then, not only in the pages of Black Adam in this 12-issue series, but also in the in some of uh, one-shots where he's appeared. I think he's an interesting addition to the DC universe in this growing family, the dawn of the DCU. And so, yeah, I, I enjoy this issue. Yeah, like I said, I can't wait to read it all in one sitting because I think it'll... Uh it'll be satisfying and just, yeah, a very, very and much anticipating because it almost seems like we've had 11 issues of setup. I mean, things have happened. Um, and it's definitely moved the narrative along. It's come a long way from the beginning, uh, to be honest, but it hasn't all come together yet. So I'm curious to see how it all comes together in the final issue. Uh, all right. Up next, we have Superman number four. This is written by Joshua Williamson. There, there are some fan. First of all, I have to say there are some fan, Fantastic covers. Um, like, I haven't... I, I ordered, like, the main cover whenever I ordered two months ago or what have you. But I'm still going to have to to order some more. Uh, and pick up some more when I go to my local comic shop this uh, this Tuesday. And I, I, or Monday, uh, Wednesday, rather. But I don't know what I'm going to pick up. Like, there's a 1 in 50 Ramona Freighton that's absolutely fantastic. Um, Lee Bermejo has a cover. Gabriel Rodriguez has a... a um, a live wire cover, like, oh my God, I, the covers are just, just absolutely ridiculous. They're so good on this particular issue. Uh, but anyway, as I mentioned, written by Joshua Williamson, Jamal Campbell and Nick Dragota are the artists. Colors by Campbell and Frank Martin. Letters are by Ariana Mayer. Um, it, it's interesting what uh, Joshua Williamson is doing, right? Because the first arc of this, if you will, almost only three issues when we talk about Parasite. Now we still are following along with these, with these mad scientists, the ones that have a, a history with, uh, with Lex Luthor. And we're also continuing to see Superman, uh, some of his classic villains show up here. So we started with Parasite. Now we're moving on to, uh, to Silver Banshee. But in the end, uh, it's, still, it's still sort of the same story, but yet at the same time feels vastly different, right? Because we, Three issues of Parasite. Now we're moving on to Silver Banshee, but at the end of the day, we're still dealing with those uh, those mad scientists that that Luther first met when he came to uh, Metropolis. And there's a flashback scene with Luther back even when he still had hair, and he's wearing almost a, a Batman like getup with a, uh, a utility belt. And it's green and purple, of course, Luther colors, um, and he's like this 
sort of science adventure, if you will, even with the <laughs> battle cry. He's a superhero. Science- <laughs> yeah. You know, and Superman's like, he's like, you're lying. Really trying to clean up the streets of Metropolis. And he's, and L- Luther's telling him, no, I was. And gives him clues of, of where he first met these, um, these two guys, these two scientists, uh, brothers, farm and graft. Um, and, you know, send Superman there. And of course it's a trap. There's Silver Banshee. Um, and what was interesting, we, you know, we saw uh, Farm and Graf, uh, sort of kidnap Silver Banshee in the first couple of pages and, and mutator much like they did with, uh, with Parasite in the first three issues. And what was interesting was it, she's dropping some clues and, and contextually you think, wait, is she, is she in Jimmy Olsen's apartment? Is Jimmy Olsen dating Silver Banshee? Silver Banshee, who's out on parole currently and is actually trying to turn over a new leaf. I like that aspect of it. And then, you know, at the end, after she's been kidnapped, she's been mutated and she attacks Superman. Um, and, and Superman is, is trying to, you know, capture her. And Jimmy is there and, and runs in front of her and says, no, Superman, stop. You can't hurt her. Don't hurt her. I love her. Uh, and I just thought that was – it's just a lot of fun, right? Uh, sort of this – Classic idea of Jimmy sort of getting in over his head, especially with girls and being mutated. And, you know, those, you think back to those classic Silver Age Superman stories. So Williamson playing a little bit with that. But really what I love about it, well, well first of all, the art is, is fantastic from Paul Campbell as it has been throughout, both in line work and colors. But also this idea of, yes, going back to these classic Superman villains, right? Superman being that he's the first real superhero been around the longest, you would think he would have a better uh, rogues gallery. Like when people think of like the best groups of villains, you know, everybody always says, Oh, Batman, he's got the best groups of villains. When you talk about like being iconic and you know, identifiable with Joker, Penguin or two face or killer croc. I mean, go poison. Ivy, can go on and on and on and on. Right. Superman, he has villains that are, that are sort of specific to him, but they don't hold the same, sort of um, instant recognizability, you know, Spider-Man's another one. You could, you know, just rattle them off. Oh, well, you got the Scorpion, you got Green Goblin, you got Hobgoblin, you got Dr. Octopus, you got Shocker, you got Sandman. It just goes on and on and on, right? Superman, it's like, okay, Parasite, well, Lex, you start with Lex Luthor and everybody knows that one. And then after that, it sort of falls off, right? Like think about what villains you have had in Superman movies, right? It's not a lot. It always ends up being Lex. But what about Toy Man? What about Mixius Pitalik? What about Silver Banshee? You know, what about Toy Man? You, you, there are Bizarro. There's another one. Um, there are classic Superman villains, and I feel like they don't show up enough. People want to constantly create new ones for some reason instead of going back to some of these classic villains and, you know, making them more recognizable, making them more formidable, making us real. Yeah, Superman does have a good rogues gallery in and of itself. So I, I like that Williamson seems to be leaning into that. And I hope this continues, you know, I hope we see some of those other, um, other villains that I named. I don't know that we could do Mixius Pitalik. He might be kind of tough for farm and graph to get a hold of and, and to, to dial up his power. I mean, I don't know how you dial up the powers on a fifth dimensional imp. They're sort of omnipotent already, but certainly toy man is one that could show up. Um, we did see, Kenny Braverman uh, show up. I, I think Conduit, I think he's one that, that could show up again. Uh, he was in Philip Kenny Johnson's run. Um, for that matter, Doomsday, again, he might be kind of tough to, 
to amp him up. But there are other um, Superman villains that can show up here, and I, I hope Terra Man is another one that really could use some could use some <laughs> good PR. I guess you'd say, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, there just there aren't enough good ones that people when you think of them, you immediately think, oh yeah, that's a Superman villain. They're dangerous. Here's things they've done. You don't you just don't think about them. Superman villains in the same way you do Batman villains, you know, and he, and Superman is, I don't know, maybe it's a product of Superman being so powerful um, that nobody ever really seems like a real threat to him. I don't know. So anyway, I enjoyed this issue. I thought it was fantastic. Love the idea of Silver Banshee um, and, and uh, Jimmy Olsen having a relationship and we'll see how it all, we'll see how it all plays out in the end. So what were your thoughts? Well, uh, I really enjoyed this issue. I got to give props to Joshua Williamson because, I mean, uh, wow. Uh, I never thought of Silver Banshee as being a potential love interest for Jimmy Olsen, but I love how Joshua Williamson dropped hints. I want to give a shout out to uh, anyone. If, if you could have guessed that the final page reveal would have been Jimmy Olsen having a relationship with Silver Banshee, good for you, because there was a hint on the very – uh, on on pretty much the the very first page, where the, uh, uh, Siobhan McDougal, other, otherwise known as Silver Banshee, is sitting there just wearing a shirt, and she's saying, "Get your wee butt out of bed, Turtle Baby." Well, now why would she call uh, Jimmy Olsen Turtle Baby? Well, that's because back in the day, the in the premiere of you know Jimmy Olsen was Turtle Boy back in uh, June of 1961, Superman's pal Jimmy Olsen issue number 53 in June of 1961. Joshua Williamson, you did you pulled a Mark Wade. Good for you. You got a good call back there to Jimmy Olsen Turtle Boy. That's fantastic. And so what a what a what a lovely hint. And I I never caught you know I never caught it. I thought it was just some you know. I did I did catch it because she yeah, for three things she says Turtle Baby, and then she says <laughs> if you're late again Lois won't be happy. Yeah. And then she says she's going to be yelling about how she needs front page art. Yeah. So with those three things, Turtle, yeah. the new Jimmy Olsen and Turtle Boy. <laughs> yeah. Between Turtle and then. Uh, Lois won't be happy. We know Lois is currently the editor and then saying that they're going to need front page art. You know, they're going to need front photos. I, I was like, Oh my God, it's, but I didn't realize that that was uh silver Banshee until she opened the door. And then you see her transform. She says, uh, get out of here before I scream. And then at that moment yeah. I was like, Holy crap, Jimmy Olsen and silver Banshee are a thing. No, yeah. go Jimmy. Oh yeah. And, and it was uh, just very well done. Very well done. And, uh, uh, another props to uh, just uh, and I like the plot point that uh, Doctor uh, Farm and uh, Graft they're they're actually uh, we have a new change to the mythology regarding kryptonite. To my knowledge, I think this is the first time Joshua Williamson is uh, introducing the idea through the characters of Doctor Farm and Graft that amplified kryptonite radiation when infected or when combined with certain metahuman powers can disrupt those powers and make them go awry and allow that particular super or metahuman to be controlled. And that's how they controlled live wire. And, and it's also how they control, uh, Siobhan McDougal, the silver banshee in this issue. So I, I kind of like that. And I also like how there's, I like how Joshua Williamson is developing the relationship of Lex Luthor and Superman. And this is, this, this is such, this 
this was so beautifully done, this issue. I gotta, I, I can't believe I'm complimenting Williamson this much. But, you know, when we first meet Lex Luthor in this issue, he's, he's being, he's reading a book while in prison and he's annoyed by, a, by another prisoner, another inmate who he knows has a peanut allergy. And he just calmly flicks an almond down the prisoner's, uh, down the, the inmate's throat. And, and he doesn't even care that the inmate might die because he, you know, he's working with Superman. And as he tells Superman later, well, I'm never going to get out of here even on good behavior. Who are you kidding? And, and that is juxtaposed later on in the issue where Superman, where Lex is telling Superman a story of how he met, first met Dr. Farm and Graft, because when he was a young, he was more idealistic when he first came to Metropolis, and he, in fact, wanted to be a superhero. And you really see the difference between Lex Luthor and, and a young Clark Kent. A young Lex Luthor also wanted to be a hero, but it was grounded in ego and narcissism. And he likely wanted, he was doing it for all the wrong reasons, or maybe he felt he had to, but he was doing it for ego. Whereas you compare that to a young Clark Kent, young Clark Kent, of course, Superman does it, doesn't do it for the, for the attention. He doesn't do it for, for narcissism or, or, or his ego. He does it because it's the right thing to do. And so you just, but I really like the callback. I like the idea of a younger Lex Luthor because we've seen anti-hero Lex. We've seen villain Lex. We've even seen, Lex kind of like a hero, but he's never really been a purebred hero. But this, we're getting another different side of Lex Luthor that even Superman finds hard to believe and even some readers might find hard to believe. But I believe it and I think it's consistent with Lex Luthor sort of, uh, you know, moving moral compass from time to time. It sort of fits his character. And I got to give props to Williamson for doing that. I thought he did a really good uh, job. And even how they figured out it was a trap. Superman was, walks into a trap or silver Banshee attacks him. And then at the end where Jimmy Olsen jumps in front of a silver Banshee saying he loves her. I thought it was so well done. Uh, Just, I mean, I'm just, I'm really impressed with this issue. And uh, I I don't like the cover. I, I don't like cover A. But I, I agree with you that uh, the the, uh, the the variant covers are are pretty good. The the ugliest cover, unfortunately, is cover A, but that's the one I got because my retailer doesn't order one in ten, one in twenty five, one in fifty variants, and uh, because uh, he can't justify it, and uh, it's unfortunate because there's a lot of nice covers here, but. Um, uh, but yeah, real nice cover, and the live wire cover is awesome. But overall, a pretty damn good issue. Yeah, I, I kind of like cover A. I mean, that's the one that I got. I didn't have anything wrong, you know, wrong with it per se. But yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just that boring. Being said, the live, <laughs> yeah, the Livewire cover isn't a variant cover. It's just the, the cover D. The Ramona Frayden is, unfortunately, it's a one in fifty, and, and I probably can't justify spending the money on that either. Um, but uh, yeah, the Jamal Campbell cover, uh, Jamal Campbell meme cover, I, I, I find it interesting. Um, but yeah, Lee Bermejo, I mean, such a fan of his, I had to, I had to get that cover. So, but yeah, I'll probably end up picking up <laughs> a cover or two more. Um, yeah, you're right about the, the shifting moral compass of Lex Luthor and, and it, it does make sense. Even though he's helping Superman, you wouldn't go so far as to say he's, you know, and you can kind of see why he's helping Superman. He's, <laughs> you never would think, yeah, Lex is content to be behind bars, but he, he sort of is right now. He sort of is content. Because he feels safer there, he doesn't feel as threatened by farm and graft being, uh, you know, behind the scenes. And he's he's sort of rehabilitating himself, right? As he's, sh- you know, showing himself, hey, I'm staying behind bars. I'm serving my time. I'm not trying to escape, and I'm helping Superman. You know, he's not doing it out of the goodness of his heart. He knows it's having changed the name of LexCorp to SuperCorp is only going to help him in the long run. At least that's what he thinks, right? Um, so you can see that even though he's 
he's sort of helping. He's doing it for his own selfish reasons. So like you said, Rocky, it, it, it's understandable. It, it makes sense, the characterization that we're getting uh, from Williamson of, uh, of Lex. So, uh, All right, up next we have The Vigil, number one. This is written by uh, Ram V. We have Art, and man, I, I hope I'm, I'm pronouncing this name correctly. Let me get to the credits page. Um, actually, we don't have a credits page, so let me pull the name from the, uh, the front cover. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I hope I'm saying it right. It's uh, Lalit Kumar Sharma on the art, and then Rain Barreto does the colors. Uh, and once again, we have some fantastic covers. Um, I'm str- struggling. I don't know which cover. I ordered the main cover when I ordered it you know, way back when, two months ago, before we knew all the variant covers. So now I'm going to have to decide, am I going to get one more, two more, three more? I don't know. I guess we'll, we'll have to see. But, uh, but yeah, this is uh, the, the debut of The Vigil in their own book. Uh, we saw them show up in the pages of Detective Comics, and they made their debut in one of the Lazarus Planet one-shots. I um, can't remember which one it was, but it's referenced in, in this uh, in this book by editorial note. Um, I'm sure I'll come across it, but uh, what, are, what are your thoughts on this issue? I really like it. I, 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 I was relieved when I read it because I thought the introduction of the vigil in the pages of Detective Comics was a, a, a serious misstep. And I, I wasn't, I thought it was just a very bad, a, a dumb thing to do because Ram V's Detective Comics uh, series, he, he's, he's not, I, I don't particularly like it all that much. It's, it's too convoluted. It's dragged out. I don't think it flows very well. I'm happy to report, at least for me, uh, this issue of uh, this opening issue of the vigil. I'm actually interested in these characters. I, I like. I really. I actually like the premise. I thought the action here was really good. I. The whole idea of the vigil is really. Uh, I'm going to give it to you in a nutshell. This mysterious benefactor by the name of Mister Lightless. He's the secret employer who recruits and trains members of the vigil. It consists of a Doctor Sakaran who recruits this Nia Saha into the vigil, and it consists of various people whose of various people with various metahuman abilities whose goal is to essentially steal technology, steal devices before these devices fall into the into criminal hands. So there's a lot of uh, if you if you always if you're wondering what happens to all this crazy tech tech that LexCorp creates and you know what happens to it when it's no longer being used well the vigil is essentially an organization consisting of all these characters that we're going to talk about that basically uh, obtains this tech they go and they steal this tech under the guise of you know serendipitously they 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 steal this tech and then they destroy it for the safety of the world now that's it in a nutshell here but now of course you can imagine what what makes it more interesting is the fact that they always need to do something and they and in this case it's uh this is off the off the coast of Thailand where there's a lot of pirates and under the guise of rescuing uh people from uh ter- from pirate terrorists on a on a cargo ship they they end up saving the lives of the people on the ship but that's actually a convenient <laughs> consequence they're actually there to steal Lexcor tech and to destroy it on this ship and that's exactly what they do and at the beginning when we meet this Dr. Sankaran he basically is talking to an I think an Indian government official uh, and they're they're really upset because they wanted Dr. Sankaran to help him uh, or Sankaran I apologize if I'm saying it wrong Dr. Sankaran if he's 
he's they're using him to try to create their own metahumans because everyone else on the planet has them. America has them. Russia. Why can't we have some? But it's a it's supposedly a failed experiment and they don't have them. But in fact, it's not failed. And this uh, this this Nia Saha character is recruited by uh, is recruited by the vigil and she's introduced to her teammates and her teammates are quite interesting. One is an individual by the name of Saha whose skin is not attached to his body. And so he can mold his face uh, with the help of a particular masking device. He can create, uh, he can make his face look like uh, anybody that he puts this mask to. And there's a character called Dodge that can twist really fast all the muscle fibers in her body. And she has got super fast reflexes. And then there's another character called Castle who's sort of like the computer tech guy. He controls operations. He's sort of like the, like the Oracle guy, like Barbara Gordon. I, that's my interpretation of it. There's this major con character. And there's even this character called Aquib or Aquib that we don't know what he does. He's got an unknown power set that he, he we're going to find out next issue what he's capable of doing because not only do they, do they, do they steal this tech that is dangerous and destroy it? They they then go after who the tech was being delivered to. So they not only want to take out the tech and destroy the technology that is dangerous technology, they also want to find out, okay, who ordered this tech? Who wanted it? We're going to go take them out as well. So it's kind of cool. I like the premise. And I think it works quite well. I love the voices here. This, this, uh, I love the pacing here. I thought this was action packed. I loved how we, we met, we met the characters. This doesn't feel, this feels like a demonstrably different kind of comic book than Ram V's writing on Swamp Thing and, and his writing on, um, Detective Comics in particular. This feels more clear, more concise. It has clarity. It's, it's, I, I really like, love the art. And, uh, you, you mentioned the creative teams. I'm, I'm not familiar i'm not familiar with um uh uh sharma on on art i'm not familiar with this sharma character or burrito on the colors but uh uh you know i'm pleased with it i'm i like the way I'm, i like the way it's all come together so i'm excited for this for an opening issue i thought this checked off all the boxes for me and i think this is a good addition to a dawn of the dcu what do you think yeah, I did find the the uh, the credits page. <laughs> God, it's it's like halfway in the middle of the book, which I, I just anyway. Yeah, Ram V, the writer, Lalit or Lalit Kumar Sharma, artist, Rain Bredo colors, Dave Sharp does letters. Uh, so they did debut in Lazarus Planet Next Evolution that anthology. It was the uh, Red Hood story where Lazarus Resin was being brought into Gotham Harbor. Um, Red Hood went to try to stop it. The Vigil had beat him to it. They'd already destroyed it. So, you know, along the lines of what Rocky's saying, they they find technology, whether it's new technology um, that people are developing that is dangerous or whether it's old technology or, or old resources like Lazarus Resin that they don't want falling into the wrong hands. Um, they're out there to destroy it. And what gives them the right? What gives them the right to decide um, what technology the – world at large is ready for. So there's a lot of gray area here. And that's what I'm most interested in. Uh, a couple of things. Well, first of all, so I read an interview that Ram V did uh, talking about th this and what he hopes to accomplish with it. And it was super interesting. Now, Ram V somebody that I talked to on a semi-regular basis, talk about coming on the show. We never seem to get the timing right. Um, Cause I, you know, I want him to come on. First of all, when he has time, he's not worried about deadlines. And also not when everyone's having him on at the same time, because then he's just saying the same thing that he's saying on all these other uh, 
podcasts or interviews or what have you. So I do want to have him on to talk about the vigil because I feel like this is some of his best work. And it's really interesting to hear him talk about it in terms of what he's trying to explore in that gray area of technology and futurism and that sort of thing. But also from a perspective of let's bring some Indian characters into the DCU, right? Some, some, um, some heroes from, from India. And there's some conspiracy theories and whatnot going on behind the scenes. And we get that a little bit in this first issue. And these are characters that, yes, they are a team in terms of, you know, the, the, they are members of the vigil. They don't necessarily like each other. They don't necessarily get along. They, They aren't necessarily people that would choose to spend time with one another. They're sort of forced together by circumstance. You know, they're not, bestowed with these godlike super heroic powers it's more they've had something wrong with them and this doctor who's sort of the de facto leader or at least the one that we're shown you know there's a, a mr lightless that we're told is actually in charge but there's hints that there's somebody even above him and that that sort of conspiracy theory and mystery will play out throughout the uh, the six issues but we're shown here that these these people these members of the vigil, they, yeah, they have something, <laughs> excuse me, they have something quote unquote wrong with them, so to speak. And they, the powers that be in India have, have tried to take advantage of that and, you know, make changes to them to give them these powers so that they can use them for their own devices, right? That's what the Indian government wants to do. That's why they've given these resources to Dr. Sankaran and he's, sort of played them for fools, so to speak, right? Like he's pretending that it was all a big failure and we're not going to, you know, I I don't have anything to offer you. Sorry, government guys. Sorry, uh, Indian military uh, decision makers. I don't have anything to offer you to to go out and, and, you know, accomplish your missions or or take orders from you because he sort of pulled their eyes and said, yeah, it's been a big, a big failure. He sort of played the fool. So again, conspiracy within conspiracy within conspiracy, which is, again, really interesting from Ram V because this is all set in uh, India and in, in the politics of that region, which hasn't really been explored in the DCU. And there's a lot of things going on uh, with India. Like people think of it as like this spiritual place, very third world. Um, and there is that aspect of it, 100%. But there's also a lot of tech coming out of India. So it's, it's a very dichotomous region. And uh, I, I welcome uh, Ram V to, to sort of bring some of that culture and technology in that are in that country and in that area to the DCU. And th- this was just a fantastic debut in terms of pacing, in terms of introduction to the characters. This is how you do it, right? Like we got action, we got little hints of characterization, enough to intrigue us, enough to pull the new readers in, but we're not overwhelmed with you know, seven, eight, nine, ten characters. Uh, everybody gets a little bit of time. He does a good job of, of name dropping the characters um, and, and showing their powers. I thought the by Sharma was fantastic. I kept going back to certain panels and uh, look at, at them over and over because they're so fantastic. Dodge, who, as Rocky said, has, you know, that extra... Uh, fast twitch muscle muscle fiber, which is a real thing, right? It, this has been studied, and in some of the uh, top professional athletes uh, in in whatever particular uh, sport they play, it's been shown that some of them 
have like more than the average amount of fast twitch muscle fiber, which helps hand-eye coordination. So it's a real thing. Obviously, this has been dialed up to 11 by Ram V. So Dodge is, has so much of this fast twitch m- muscle fiber that she can almost move faster than the eye can see, or at least faster than a, a camera can record. And there's one particular scene where she approaches this guy who's pulled a gun on her, and you can see that she's dismantled the gun, uh, broken the guy's arm, and then punched him in the <laughs> in the face, all within one panel. It's like multiple exposures, and it's just a panel, both in terms of kind of the, the double, triple exposure that Sharma gives the line work, and then also the colors um, that Rain Barreto does. It's it, probably my favorite panel in the whole uh, in the whole issue. It's, it's fantastic. If you're watching us on YouTube, Rocky has it up on the screen. Uh, but yeah, I, I was blown away by this issue. Like I I loved it to the point like I'm probably going to do a standalone review. Um, and, and go deeper into it because this is only a six issue. Now, Ram V's um, Swamp Thing was only supposed to be a six issue, but it did well enough in sales and had enough fan support that they extended it. I'm really, really, really hoping that we can drum up fan uh, support for the vigil and get the same thing. And Ram V has said as much in some interviews as well that he really hopes that this can go longer. He's got three or four story arcs in mind. Um, and he also, I also read where he said that what we see in terms of the world building and what we see in terms of the overall structure of the vigil in this first issue is about 20% of the world building that he's done. Uh, so he's got a lot of ideas. That's awesome. There's, yeah, there's a lot of depth to this story. And I mean, for being a first issue now, again, they debuted in that Lazarus planet anthology and then they showed up for a few panels in, in detective comics um, but for only having shown up two times prior to this, they feel so established already in this first issue. So again, I think that's a credit to what Ram V and uh, uh, Sharma and Brain Barreto and Dave Sharp have done here. Like this is just, this is how you do a debut issue. I was very, very impressed. Like as soon as I finished reading this, I went out, I was like, I need more, right? Like I don't have issue two, but I need more. I want to know more. I went out looking for, for Ram V interviews, podcasts, what have you. So I could get more context. I could get more behind the scenes. I read a few articles, uh, interviews that he had done. And that's where I'm pulling a lot of the information that I'm sharing with you guys, because it's clear he's very passionate about this project. And don't get me wrong. I haven't loved his, um, his detective comics run. Um, but I, I would never say his detective comics run is not working because he's not trying hard enough or he's not putting himself, you know, out there enough. If anything, I think he's been, been overly ambitious with it and he's kind of jumped the shark in terms of it being a Batman story. So, uh, you know, you could never say that Ram V doesn't put his all into his stories. It's not working for me with Batman necessarily. Not that there's anything technically wrong with it, um, but it's working for me here. Like this is absolutely fantastic. I cannot recommend the vigil uh, high up. So uh, that being said, let's move on. We have another number one, Cyborg number one. This is written by uh, Morgan Hampton, who was uh, one of the members of the uh, Milestone Initiative, kind of a DC academy, if you will, um, where they're kind of showing uh, new up and coming writers the ropes and and how things are done. The art is by... um, let me get to the, the credits page. Tom Rainey. Tom yeah, Rainey. Tom Rainey uh, does the art. And uh, then we've got Michael Atea on colors and Rob Lee on letters. Um, 
there have been times where, where I have, I won't speak for Rocky, but where I haven't been the, the biggest fan of Tom Rainey, uh, especially on his future state Green Lantern issues that he did because his, um, his anatomy sometimes is wonky. Like sometimes it looks like somebody's six feet tall and other, the very next panel, it'll look like they're four feet tall. Um, I did not have a problem with the art here at all. Uh, there are times where anatomy looks a, a little exaggerated here or there. Um, but it worked for me in terms of the style of the story. And also because a lot of times we're talking about robots that are kind of changing form or cyborg himself, who's, uh, you know, different parts of his body are manifesting different weapons and what have you. So from that perspective, I thought it was fantastic. <laughs> the colors by Michael Atea are really interesting. They're almost a little bit um, pastel. And so, again, I think it works really well. I love that more. And I heard Morgan talk about this. He's like, why does Cyborg ha- never have clothes on? Like the guy is, is theoretically walking around naked, right? Like he never has clothes on. And he wanted <laughs> to uh, he wanted to rectify that. And I got to say, I love this. I love the the kind of the jumpsuit or sweatsuit that Cyborg is wearing. Um, it seems like it would be something that Victor Stone would wear. You know, he's got a little bit of a popped collar. Uh, he's got like the, the Cyborg symbol on the shoulder, uh, orange and, and kind of this teal color. So again, go, talking about those pastel colors, it just seems like something that Vic Stone would wear. It's It's cool, right? And he's back in Detroit. He's back in his hometown. He's got, um, you know, a lot of fans there. Obviously, he was a, a beloved uh, high school football star there, we know, uh, before the accident that uh, ultimately led to his father rebuilding him in the cyborg body with uh, the aid of a mother box, uh, apocalyptic technology, what have you. So when uh, we get some glimpses on social media of the people seeing him wearing this uh, this sweatsuit or jumpsuit or what have you, going, oh, man, I, I really he's wearing that. I really want to get one of those. Like all that feels so authentic, right? And that leads me to my next point, which is Morgan does a great job of giving an authentic voice to to Vic Stone and to the other uh, supporting characters in the book. Um, Silas Stone is taken off the board, supposedly, early on in this. We know the father issues um, that Cyborg has, and that's addressed as well. And it, it's very meta, right? Like there's this uh, subset of fans that will know Cyborg only as kind of the fun-loving booyah character from uh, from the Titans cartoon, right? Um and he does say and booyah in the issue. He does say booyah, yeah. booyah in the issue. <laughs> he does. And, and, and that's okay. Morgan is inviting those people in, you know, by acknowledging that, but really hinting that, hey, there's a lot more to Cyborg than that, right? Like that sort of lovable meathead uh, characterization of the cartoon is, is fine for that. This is something more sophisticated. This is something more mature. It's what I would expect from uh, a DC writer. And I give all the credit in the world to Morgan for the pacing of this issue, because as we know, I've said many, many times as a new writer, one of the hardest things to get right is pacing. Like how much story do you give? How much story do you not? And it can be a real challenge when you're talking about established characters. This is a number one issue. There may be people that come on that have never read a cyborg comic before. Maybe they know him from the cartoon. Maybe they don't. Maybe they're picking this up for the first time. Maybe it's you know Morgan's mom or cousin or something that's picking it up based on the fact that Morgan's the one writing it. I mean, who knows? He gives enough, right? He gives enough so you get a little bit of an introduction. There's hints about uh, Cyborg's origin, but we're not spoon-fed the origin. 
so that there's not anything here for uh, for longtime DC fans. There's plenty for longtime DC fans. There's plenty for Cyborg fans, but it's also new reader friendly. So hopefully Morgan can keep up the same pace and the same quality of story because I was really, really impressed. And this is some of the best Tom Rainey artwork I've seen. So uh, a real fantastic job by this creative team. Uh, I thought it was a really good issue. I mean, we've had, I want to say, three number one issues of Cyborg in the last maybe five or six years. Um, and this is the best one. I think this is this is the one that, that kind of suits the character best and is really talking about, and maybe it's because it's set in Detroit, right, which is his hometown and it's sort of grounding him and humanizing him. Um, but it's really kind of playing with this idea that he's got a foot in two worlds. The Titans even show up for Silas's uh, um, funeral. And you get this idea that, yeah, Cyborg is in Detroit and he's he's sort of trying to reestablish some roots and ground himself, but he still has that other foot with the Titans. And we're going to talk about Titans 1 in a little bit, where that's a much bigger story and a much bigger role that he needs to play overall, sort of taking it with the Titans taking over for the Justice League. So anyway, I, I was impressed. What do you think, Rocky? Well, one of the things that I was actually worried about is because uh, I've never been a huge Cyborg fan myself. And uh, I actually, I've read all the other Cyborg series and because I, uh, because I love DC and I, I want to love all the characters. Cyborg's never really, he's never been able to capture, no writer's been able to capture the essence of Cyborg uh, that, that I remember fondly back in my, cla- in the classic Marv Wolfman, George Perez, Teen Titans days. And one of the things that uh, I'm, I'm actually impressed with what Morgan Hampton has been able to do here that I didn't think he'd be able to pull off because I thought to myself straight up, I thought, oh, my God, this is Victor Stone once again having daddy issues. Oh, here we go. We haven't heard this before, have we? But oddly enough, I actually think that Morgan Hampton is approaching that in a new and refreshing way. And he does so in a very clever manner. And and he does that through an introduction of a corporation that uh, Silas Stone, uh, Silas Stone works for a Solus Corporation. And their corporate motto is delegate your decisions. And this uh, another character called Marcus Wilcox, which might end up being the villain. He works with Silas Stone and Silas Stone through this story as as uh, as a story introductory story which is very accessible to new readers uh, we it uh, Silas Stone dies in this issue and uh, and or at least we think he dies and Victor Stone is coming to terms with that and the Titans show up at his funeral and he's reflecting back and he's feeling a little depressed and he's even talking to a psychologist and he's, he needs counseling and and part of me was thinking ah you know what come on Victor is, is this where this is going is this gonna why don't you go see Power Girl she's a telepath let her float around in your mechanical mind right I mean I thought is this where this is going but I, I think that there's a better angle here that uh, Morgan Hampton is is approaching it with and that is the fact that Silas Stone was always a control freak. He wanted to control the destiny of his son. He wanted his son to be the best that he could be and that his son could do better and, and be better. And isn't it interesting that Solace, this corporation that his father Silas works for with this Marcus Wilcox, their motto, corporate motto is delegate your decisions. This is a corporation that uh, there's a news, there's a, at one point, there's two pages of a, of a news broadcaster talking about this new corporation where you can give your DNA to this corporation and they will tell you how to work out, what to eat. They'll delegate your life. They'll make your decisions for you. And I couldn't help but to see the thematic, the, the, how, how that really is 
symbolic of how Silas was, Silas's attitude, who was a control freak. He wanted to control his wife's life. He wanted to control Victor's life. Victor, uh, Silas Stone wanted to control too much and he couldn't just accept his son for who he was. And the, the, and it makes sense that Silas would end up working for the Solar Solace Corporation. And at the end here, when this robot shows up in Victor's house and it, it's wearing a badge and it looks like this robot is the robotic equivalent of Dr. of his father, Silas Stone, I couldn't help but to think of the poetic tragedy of the fact that Silas Stone, who was always about in control, that the same fate that befalled his son, Victor, who became cyborg, of course, uh, now Silas is also the victim of his own machinations and need for control. But by, it looks like he's a, he's a, a, a robot himself now, or at least that appears that way. So it, it introduces an interesting psychological element to it. And it's approached in a unique way that I didn't expect Morgan Hampton to do that. And I'm actually so, find myself looking at those same sort of psychological issues that Victor's dealt with before in my mind, but it's a, it's a kind of a refreshing and new take on it through the mind of his father and through a, a very good reader-friendly, new reader-friendly opening issue. So kudos to Morgan Hampton and Tom Rainey's art. I thought it was a little wonky in parts, but it, it works for me. I like it. Tom Rainey, uh, while he can be a little bit off with some of his proportions from time to time, he is really good at uh, – I find that generally he's good at backgrounds and he's good at I, – I always – you know, I, I'm always – I'm never taken out of the story. I always know what's going on. So uh, overall, I was uh, I was pleased with this opening issue. Yeah, I agree 100%. Uh, okay, up next, Batman Brave and the Bold, number one, highly anticipated new anthology series, kind of taken over for the uh, Batman, was it Urban Legends? Was that what the... Yes. Uh, pre- yeah, previous anthology. So we have uh, four stories here. Batman, the winning card, part one. This is a Joker story. Tom King on writing, Mitch Garrett's on art and colors, Clayton Calder the letters. There's a Stormwatch story, Down with the Kings, part one, written by Ed Brisson. Just Spoke does the art and colors. Seda Timofanti on letters. There's a Superman story, Order of the Black Lamp, written by Christopher Cantwell, Javier Rodriguez on art and colors, Simon Bolin on letters. And then Heroes of Tomorrow, which has story and art by Dan Mora. Uh, it's a black and white story. And then uh, Tom Napolitano does the uh, letters. So let's start with the Joker story. I don't have a heck of a lot to say here. Um, it wasn't anything that was too surprising. It is set during uh, the first year of Batman, so Batman Year One. It felt like a Tom King story. It looked like a Mitch Garrett's art, uh, so high quality, technically well done. But at the end of the day, it's a Joker story, and we didn't get anything new. And there's some mystery involved with uh, you know the Joker sending these clues. He manages to murder somebody who's sitting in a room full of police and steal a diamond right out from under their noses. How exactly he does that while he's actually out, um, I won't say threatening, but spending time with a a little girl and eventually murders her father. That all remains to be seen, but uh, I'm sure it'll come together in the end because it's Tom King and Mitch Garrods, but it's really hard for me to get excited about a Joker story, even one done by uh, creators as talented as this. So nothing surprising here. It was uh, it was okay. Um, not not really much else to say other than that. What do you think? Well, for the uh, the Joker story, I have to say that it's. I think it's very well told. I think it's very well told. It did pull me in. I think it's very well told, and I really thought that the. 
I, I actually really loved the black, the the full black. Whenever the Joker spoke to the little girl, it was all black, and it was done in that sort of old sort of like cinema, uh, c- cinema speak, where you could you were you were just showed the showed showed the words of what the Joker is saying. And I was unclear at the end where it shows the balloon floating in the air after the Joker kills the young girl's father. It shows the balloon floating in the air. I I, I took that as. I think I think the Joker kills the little girl, doesn't he? That's why the, she lets go of the balloon, or does she let go of the balloon because she sees her father dead, or does she let go of the balloon because the Joker stabs her? I'm, I don't know uh, because I know that there's. Uh, I think that I, I think that there's going to be a lot of people complaining that Tom King just killed a young child uh, through the yeah. Joker, but I I don't know. <laughs> I don't think the Joker killed the little girl. I think yeah, she realizes that her father's dead and no longer cares about the balloon, even though the balloon is super important to her, you know, before then. Yeah. Um, so but, yeah, I don't but, think it has any, he killed her, uh, but that's my interpretation. Who knows? Yeah. But it, it's interesting. I, I'm, I'm actually curious to know. I'm, I'm curious to know what Tom King's version of the first meeting between the Joker and Batman is. How is he going to address the Acme? Chem- you know, okay, this was after Acme chemicals. So this is, you know, what is, what is Tom King's version of this story? I'm actually kind of curious. Now I've never been a fan of how he writes Batman. I wasn't a fan of his Batman run. I wasn't a fan of his Batman Catwoman. Uh, but I really liked his Batman, uh, uh, Riddler story with, uh, whatever there's uh, one bad day Riddler. I thought that was pretty good. So, uh, we'll see. I mean, I'm not saying this is going to be bad, but I can't help but to, I have Joker fatigue. I'm always have jo- having Joker fatigue. And, uh, but I will say this. I'm, I enjoyed reading this more than the nine ad nauseum issues of the Joker, the man who, who can't seem to stop laughing in the comic book that never seems to want to end. But, uh, in any event, I wanted to, I want to do a quick rant uh, on this a little bit. Just, I just want to do a quick rant. I don't like the, uh, the trade dress on this, even though it might look kind of cool. I don't know why they don't use the classic trade dress. I think this is a bastardization of the of the concept of Brave and the Bold. Brave and the Bold is supposed to be Batman teamed up with various heroes or villains of the DC universe. I don't know why they're changing that. This was nothing this is nothing about Batman urban legends that it wasn't selling, so you're trying to rip off and in my view stain a name like Batman Brave and the Bold. You've got Mark Wade out there doing World's Finest, doing Shazam, doing all these great stories that are that that's showing you how to do it right, to use classic characters, write classic stories, Silver Age stories with modern day sensibilities and we're getting this type of crap this shouldn't be called batman brave and the bold at all this is a complete uh, this is this is just plain wrong in terms of the trade dress it's wrong in terms of the style of the story it's uh so that's me ranting and being being an old school you know negative nelly but uh, i found it frustrating and i i'm not i'm not interested in this uh just trust up uh, batman urban legends i'm not actually buying this i'm this isn't on my pull list which is rare but I, i'm i'm not getting this if if the joker story ends up being good they're going to collect that in, in a trade anyway i'll wait for that but i'm just i'm not I, I can't put my money to something like this this was a failed experiment and we get enough batman but uh uh and i never i just skim read the other uh ish, the the other the other stories, so I don't have much to say about them. <laughs> oh man, you missed out. Stormwatch is fantastic. Uh, loved the setup by Ed Brisson. I mean, we we were—I I won't say we were harsh on on Ed. I think it was um, justified criticism when we were talking about his Batman Incorporated. How many characters and and how they weren't necessarily introduced in a in a new reader friendly way uh, mm-hmm. with Stormwatch down with the Kings. 
uh, you know, you always say, Hey, here's a great chance. Give us a who's who like, um, yeah. you know, set up. Well, we have director bones welcoming the new member to, um, to Stormwatch saying, you know, welcome to Stormwatch. And we're getting these little blurbs. Oh, Director Bones, oh. a.k.a. And oh, we don't know his name, but here's his powers. Here's what he can do. And the, the new character that he is actually right. joining uh, Stormwatch is none other than Phenom One that we saw in the pages of uh, Batman Incorporated most recently. So he walks him through the, the satellite. Uh, or, or I said Phenom 1, it's Phantom 1. Yeah. We get a blurb about Phantom 1. He says, oh, here's Ravager. Okay, here's a little blurb. Here's Ravager's powers. Here's Shadow. Here's Peacekeeper uh, 1. Sean, here's Flint. And so it, it's fantastic. It's gorgeous art. The art is really great. And it reminded me what a inspired choice. I'm not – I am i can't remember off the top of my head who decided to take um, Bones and turn him into this – uh, almost Amanda Waller-like character as opposed to, you know, when he first showed up in the pages of Infinity Incorporated, he was uh, he was an out-and-out villain with the black and red and yellow costume, and he had kind of a bubble over his head. He, he sort of looked like the uh, Scooby-Doo villain from back in the day. But Jeff Spokes does the art and the colors, which I'm sure is why the, the line work and the color work work so well together. Um, and if you're a fan of, of Stormwatch, you get that sensibility. Bones comes right out and says you know, as he's explaining to, to, uh, to Phantom one, you know, this is our, this is our mission. This is what we do. We're not afraid to, to, you know, break some eggs to get things done. And the first mission that they go on is against the, um, the singularity, which if you, if you recall, uh, I think it was during, yeah, it was during Williamson's run. There was this group, uh, black hole that were using, uh, trying to harness, um, the energy of the speed force to do bad things. Right. And then within black hole, there was a kind of an elite group called the singularity and uh, they were led by Dr. William Husk. And so they're about to go break Husk out of um, iron Heights penitentiary. And so Stormwatch goes in and yeah, they're not, uh, they're not shy about taking out members of the singularity on a permanent basis. Right. Um, So it's exactly what you would think from Stormwatch a lot of action, gorgeous art, and it's kind of this take no prisoners attitude, which is fun to see every once in a while. It doesn't always work, but it works here. And at the end, Bones gets a call. You're not exactly sure who's calling the shots. Maybe it's Amanda Waller. Maybe it's somebody higher up. Maybe it's somebody we don't know. Um, but he says, hey, Operation Speed Kills was a success. And the voice on the other end aligns like, success? Iron Heights almost blown up. Flint nearly killed uh, Dr. Husk. You call this a success? And he's like, yeah, yeah, but she didn't kill him and Iron Heights didn't blow up. So, uh, and the voice on the other end is like, you know, keep an eye on her. Uh, I think you guys kind of got lucky. You can be replaced too, Bones, if you can't make sure there are no more screw ups. Uh, So pretty interesting. There's there's a lot of uh, conspiracy and, and behind the scenes machinations going on. So. Yeah, um, I, I would add to that that, uh, you know, it's this this is a story that's I think I think somewhat linked to what's going on uh, with the plot point that we'll be talking about in Titans number one uh, with additional plot points in the DC DCU primer issue and with the machinations of Amanda Waller, uh, which is likely on the other line. And so it's you know, it's interesting. It's interesting. I like Stormwatch. They're, they're cool. 
I I just wish, man, I wish they'd have their own title because, uh, you know, I mean, it, it it's just unfortunate. But I, man, comics are expensive, man. I got to put a cap on some of this stuff. <laughs> uh, yeah, 100%. Uh, the last story by Christopher Cantwell, if, uh, Superman story, it feels, feels very pulpy. Um, I'm not sure on the art if it, if it really works for me yet. I mean, it works for the aesthetic, I think, that Christopher Priest is going with. Um, with this idea of Superman being receiving this uh, mysterious note to go and save somebody, and it it's, comes with this secret decoder ring that says "Order of the Black Lamp." Um, so yeah, jury's still out on that one. I, I just don't know. I mean, it, it it definitely feels like 1940s, right? Like the art is a little simpler, uh, a lot of clean lines, and and it works on that level. Um, just don't know if it's pulling me in yet. And then the last story uh, from Dan Mora, it's sort of an Elseworld story, if you will, uh, with a futuristic Batman, um, almost a, a Voltron-like with this transforming armor and, and what have you. Um, but it, I, I think I appreciated that one most for getting a chance to see Dan Mora's art without uh, any colors and get a chance to appreciate his, his line work. So um, the art by uh, in the Superman stories by Javier Rodriguez, and again, it's, it's stylized and it's simplified, and I think that... that you know, that's purposeful, whether or not I'm going to be drawn into the story, we'll have to wait and see. Um, but the heroes of tomorrow, Dan Morris story, I thought again, most interesting. Um, I mean, it's a fine Batman story, but most interesting for seeing Dan Morris art in black and white. So, uh, anything to add about either of those Rocky? Before we uh, no, uh, no, I don't. I'll, uh, well said. <laughs> All right. Let's move on to the DC primer. Um, again, as Rocky said, this is sort of, uh, given us an idea of, of what is going on and what is going to be coming up in uh, the DC universe. Once again, I will say, I've been saying it for years, Amanda Waller is an out-and-out -out villain. <laughs> and I guess DC is no longer hiding it either. She's oh. reached out to members of the Secret Society of Supervillains to kill heroes. She's going to re reward any villains who go out and kill heroes with a pardon. Now, if this is not the most asinine thing in the world, Right, like Amanda Waller, you're telling me that Amanda Waller believes that heroes, superheroes, are a bigger threat to public safety than supervillains. Yeah. I okay. Uh, okay. Let's say that I buy that. Right. <laughs> let's. I don't. But for the sake of argument, Amanda, let's say I buy your completely off the rocker, idiotic premise. Uh, <laughs> what do you think is going to happen? When there are no longer superheroes to hold the supervillains in check, <laughs> or do you just plan on putting a bomb in every supervillain's head? And once all the superheroes are uh, eliminated, you'll just blow up the heads of all the uh, supervillains. Like it, it is no longer uh, my wish that Amanda Waller be killed. Uh, I don't think that she should be killed and taken off the playing field. I think she should be tortured for an eternity. She is that evil and that Machiavellian and that egotistical and that arrogant that she gives the entire human race a bad name. She is complete and total scum, and she is far and away become my most hated character in the DC Universe. And kudos to Joshua Williamson, the writer on this. I think that's what I'm supposed to feel. So she has taken over for me. For, for She's taken over the top spot from the Joker – as a character, I cannot stand and don't ever want to see in the pages of comics ever again. She is so beyond stupid 
to think <laughs> that killing superheroes could possibly be a solution to anything. Now, don't get me wrong. There's plenty of problems with having a world with superheroes and the destruction and what have you, you know, and it doesn't really make sense. And we all take that with a grain of salt because at the end of the day, it gives us our fantasy fulfillment to see these superheroes out there defending the earth. But, you know, if it really were a world with superheroes and supervillains, I don't think that society would last very long, honestly. It would collapse under economic strain of, you know, these battles in downtown New York and buildings falling and people being crushed and what have you. But maybe not. Who knows? You know, uh, in the U.S., we seem to shoot people every other day with guns, and yet we don't take guns away. So who who am I to say? Um, But Amanda Waller, at the end of the day, she's an idiot to think that this is going to work at all, any way, shape, or form. And just based on the fact, like, I get it. It's comics, and you have to, again, take it with a grain of salt. It's not entirely realistic. But with the number of people that Amanda Waller has pissed off, both in the shadowy hallways of, you know, covert government operations and all the villains that she's pissed off, how is this woman even still alive? There's got to be some supervillain out there that's like, I don't even care if I die. I'm killing her. So – I'm completely over it. I'm sure you're not surprised to hear me rant about Amanda Waller, but I I, I had the hardest time um, buying into this story. Like maybe Joshua Williamson thinks it's going to be a good story, what have you. But I mean, Amanda Waller, for all my hatred of her, she's never been somebody that I've said, well, man, she's really stupid. This, This premise, this plan of hers has me saying, Man, she's really stupid. And I don't think that's a good direction to take the character. I think she's a character you're supposed to hate and you're supposed to despise because there's nothing she won't do for reasons. And, and I can't even say there's nothing she won't do for, you know, in the interest of, of the U.S. It's not even in the interest of the anymore. It's just about her exercising her power and doing what she wants to do. She's almost like surpassed Lex Luthor in terms of ego and power and just this idea that she knows better than anybody else. Like she's Dr. Doom dialed up to 11. I know better than everybody else. Make me the ruler. I'll make all the good decisions, right? But at least Dr. Doom, you can kind of understand. You would never say Dr. Doom is unintelligent. Amanda Waller, she thinks this is the plan and this is the way to go, is unintelligent and is really, really stupid. And again, I just – I don't think that's a good direction for the character. So uh, I'll leave it at that. I will say Leandro Fernandez is the artist. Um, Can't even read. It's so – wonky daniela miwa does the colors troy petrie on letters and uh and after this story which lasts about 12 pages we get um some one page uh shots here of of different characters we get superman we get hal jordan green lantern john stewart green lantern shazam green arrow uh superboy uh superman son of kal-el cyborg doom patrol and, and titans and a little bit of blurb about what their Dawn of DC title is all about. So I do applaud DC for doing this and giving people an idea if they're not picking up some of these Dawn of DC series, what they might want to pick up. Um, The last thing I'll say is this Dawn of DC initiative has rolled out slowly, which I don't ever remember DC published initiative before. (laughs) Usually it's a line in the sand. Some event happens, they soft reboot or hard reboot everything. And uh, it just starts over. I don't know that I like this sort of soft rollout um, and it doesn't, they don't really feel connected. There's nothing where I could say, well, Dawn of DC is this 
right? Like with New 52, you could say, oh, well, it's a it's a fresh start, you know, a jumping on point. With Rebirth, you could say uh, it's a jumping on point where they're bringing in old legacy elements that they had kind of left behind. With Dawn of DC, I, I, there, I would have no way of, of describing it to people. Yeah, it's supposedly it's a jumping on point, but any commonality in terms of theme or story or event that's led up to this, eh? So, you know, as much as I love DC, I guess this Dawn of DC initiative is a little bit more of the, the rudderless ship that Rocky and I have uh, been talking about for the last few months. But anyway, uh, I'm curious to hear your thoughts. I, I know sure. you're not uh, quite the uh, Amanda Waller hater I am, but God, well, it's just it, – this makes sense for her to do this. It's just – it's asinine. Well, I, I, I actually – well, I actually hope it, it, it comes to make sense because uh, my first instinct was I thought this was just bad, badly written. Yeah, you're reviewing it by saying, well, you hate Amanda Waller. I'm wondering if Joshua Williamson has just crapped the bed again on a potentially, potentially big event because he sure shit the bed on Dark Crisis. Now, I just finished singing uh, Joshua Williamson's praises on uh, Superman. He's, he's hitting it out of the park with that. Uh, and uh, kudos to him. Uh, but, you know, Amanda, Amanda Waller's been in a, an absolute abortion of a character since World War Three. I mean, I even know Jeremy Adams himself doesn't know what the hell's going on. He was asking questions about, you know, whatever happened to Amanda Waller of Earth Three. Uh, I thought she's supposed to be on Earth Three. That's even mentioned here. Is this Amanda Waller even our Amanda Waller? We don't know if it is or not. It could maybe it is and maybe it is. Also, uh, is it a mistake? Does Joshua Williamson know that only a president can issue pardons? Amanda Waller has no authority to issue a pardon. Only the president can do that. <laughs> I mean, I mean, like she has. It's not like she's a governor or she's like or she's got. I mean, she's she's not an elected politician. She doesn't have. She's got zero authority to issue a pardon. So what is she telling? She tells all these supervillains. She says total pardons to anyone who kills a superhero. And so, okay, now just imagine if that happened. Imagine if all these supervillains went out, and let's say they wiped out all the villains. Is she actually going to issue pardons to every supervillain who wipes out all... So the Justice League's wiped out, killed by, let's say, the Legion of Doom. She's going to issue... Amanda Waller, an unelected official, is going to issue pardons to all these supervillains? Like, is the public... Like, that doesn't even make sense. Like... Doesn't even lack verisimilitude. I know it's a comic book, blah, 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 but it's supposed to have some degree. Uh, you know, I can suspend my disbelief to believe that a man can fly, but, you know, verisimilitude does not go that far. So I, I think this is really absurd. Now, what's more interesting to me, I mean, her saying issuing total pardons for every hero, every villain that kills a superhero, I think that's absurd. I, any total, any supervillain that believes that is, is an idiot. And because right. you, can't, you can't trust Amanda Waller. And yeah, the one, the one, anybody who, any supervillain who believes Amanda Waller may be the only person who's stupider than Amanda Waller. Yeah. yeah. And, and to add to now, one of the things that I think is more intriguing is the fact that she has peacemaker, peacemaker obtains the helmet of fate from the remains on Lazarus Island, which I think conflicts, I think with Justice Society of America, because I think Dr. Fate, I mean, the helmet of Naboo is currently being used and just by Khalid Nafur in, uh, uh, in, by Khalid in Justice Society of America. But so I'm not sure how you reconcile that with now suddenly Amanda Waller has the, uh, the helmet of fate. I, you know, and, and where is the other Amanda Waller? I mean, I thought Amanda Waller, you got to remember Amanda Waller 
took over Earth 3 by working with the crime syndicate. She's the mastermind on Earth 3 and Ultraman is allowed to play and do whatever he wants. But Ultraman is now dead thanks to Tom Taylor. So he's irrelevant. So maybe, I don't know, what did Amanda Waller get bored on Earth 3 and decide to come to Earth, this Earth and do something? Uh, I'm not sure what's going on. Also, just as uh, for those who are really enjoying Danger Street, the supervillain that Amanda Waller kills in this issue is Codename Assassin. I'm pretty sure that's Codename Assassin, who, who, who is from the 1970s. And uh, he actually stands up to her. Uh, but of course, now, I didn't know Amanda Waller has the ability to disarm a supervillain so handily like that and then catch his gun and then shoot him. Is this really Amanda Waller? Amanda Waller, uh, I'm sorry, but she's just a she's a fat black woman with an attitude. She's to my knowledge, she's got no experience in hand to hand combat, although maybe maybe I'm doing her a disservice. Maybe she's like the king plan and she actually can move that weight around quite fast. Uh, she has to have some protection, I would imagine. But I Amanda Waller is still a giant question mark in the DC universe. She's been handled absolutely terribly and and what makes it unforgivable is that she's overused and handled badly if you're going to overuse a character i remember back in the day that deathstroke was overused but even when deathstroke was overused he was still kind of cool when he showed up you, you know he was written consistently even when he was overused amanda waller's never the only thing you know about amanda waller is that they use her inconsistently she's a hero in one story then she's an anti-hero then she's a villain and and then she's kind of nice and then she kind of is and, and in fact, they even portrayed her like that in the, in the Peacemaker TV show. She's kind of all over the board and even in the movies. They got to shit or get off the pot. What is she? Is, is, this, is there more than one? Anyways, it's, it's a little bit frustrating, but I will say this. Clearly, moving into the dawn of the DCU, this, there's this narrative here that Amanda Waller is potentially the massive mastermind villain behind the scenes talking about a massive threat to the DC universe. And she actually believes that the true threat to the DC universe is that it has all these superheroes. And the only thing that can save the planet is by getting all the supervillains to kill the superheroes. That's that's where, where we're at right now. And I don't know if that's just bad writing or misdirection. I hope it's just misdirection and this goes somewhere. But I got to tell you. Joshua Williamson, he's not exactly someone who's good at uh, telling other writers, giving them guidance. And we saw that in the abortion called Dark Crisis and all those side issues with World Without a Justice League. So hopefully I'm wrong, but we'll see moving forward. I love that. I laughed when you said shit or get off the pot because you, you said Amanda Waller's a big question mark in the DC universe. And for a second, I thought you said a skid mark. Um, <laughs> you know, that would be a good, a good description of it. Who's Amanda Waller? Well, she's the skid mark of the DC universe. Yeah, so DC, get off the pot with Amanda, figure out what you want to do. Um, like maybe the one thing that she'll have to do, uh, you know, one of my favorite series of all time is the 50-issue run of the Adrian Chase Vigilante series. Yeah. And it ended in such a way that Adrian Chase, you know, spoilers for a series that's, what, 30 years old now. Uh, he ended up killing himself because he had sort of become – that, that line from Batman, right? You live long enough to become the villain. Yeah. Uh, and he had, be, he had become the villain. And he realized that if he really was going to live his life or, or you know, do what he professed to do, which was, you know, uh, offer a final solution for people that were taking the law into their own hands. And that had become himself. And so he killed himself. Uh, maybe redemption for Amanda Waller is her taking her own life. Um, you know, not that I condone suicide or uh, want to celebrate it or whatever. I, but Amanda Waller has so far jumped the shark. I don't know. I don't know what you do with the character at this yeah. point. I really <laughs> yeah. don't. 
she's the most despicable character in the entire DCU. It's it's ridiculous. So yeah. Uh, all right, let's move on. Catwoman number fifty five is up next, written by Tinny Howard. <coughs> we have art by uh, Nico Leone. Colors are by Veronica Gandini. Letters by Scatoni. Uh, what'd you think of this, Rock? Uh, this is, uh, you know, it's kind of more of the same from Teeny Howard. I've, um, uh, this is uh, Rise and Revenge Part 5. This fe- this feels like, I when, I, when I, when I read this, I read this twice and I was uh, taking notes about it. And, I, and the question that I kept coming back to is, what story is Teeny Howard trying to tell? What is, what is she trying to say about Selena, Kyle? And I'm, and, and I'm, I'm really not clear what it is and and this issue just confused me all the more i the her her run started off with with selena kyle falling in love with valmont ultimately uh, she falls in love with valmont but then valmont tries to kill batman and she ends up killing valmont and despite the fact there was no reason why she had to go to prison it was an established plot point that uh, bruce wayne could have gotten her out of jail legally she refused so she goes to dale goes to jail. Uh, that seems to be more of a, of a narrative excuse just to get Selena to meet a bunch of inmates and to drag out this story. And then when Selena, Selena then breaks out of prison. Now she broke out of prison last issue and now she's a fugitive. She didn't need to be a fugitive. She didn't need to go to jail in the first place. I don't know why I, I, I realize what that, uh, the strength of some of Teeny Howard's writing I will give her props for the, the, the character that is the most developed is, is, is Dario Tommaso, who is the gay character who uh, homosexuality is looked down upon in the mafia. And so he has a, he has a relationship with one of the other, uh, w- one of the other uh, mobsters. And so that relationship and how it plays out and the consequences for Dario, I think it's been well written and well, well trotted out over the last, you know, five or six issues or actually longer than that. Uh, but the, Selena's story is what where it's it's just been lost on me because I don't I don't feel it's realistic. I don't think that Selena would I, I don't think Selena would necessarily lose as much sleep as as is being suggested here by killing Valmont. I don't think she even needed to kill Valmont. I thought it was out of character for her to uh, to let herself go to jail. Why would she do that? That it never made sense why she went to jail. It also never made sense to me. You would think that she'd want revenge on Punchline. Last issue, uh, Selena was befriend, seemed to almost befriend Punchline and let Punchline go. And it just doesn't really make a lot of sense. And then, and in this issue, she gets out and she talks to Iko Hasegawa, who is per, who is who is a, the other Catwoman, and basically tells asks Iko to give up. The mantle of Catwoman because she's she she doesn't need to wear a mask when she's eco she's, she's like 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 the godmother she's her uh, she's got her own agency and her own right as the head of the uh, Hasegawa crime family and so she wants Eko to you know let her be the Catwoman even that S- Selena I don't think Selena would ask Selena would say I'm Catwoman take the costume off I. Teeny Howard has is has tried to soften up Selena. Selena is harder than this. I view Selena as being Selena's a thief. Selena's a thief, and she is at heart, she is more on the villainous side than not. She may not be a killer, but she's not afraid to kill. And she's got a harder edge than Teeny Howard. Teeny Howard has tried to soften Selena up, and I don't think it's worked. It's not believable. 
I just don't buy it. And that's why I just, uh, I don't mind some of the characterizations. I was kind of curious. I like the, I like the, the, the inmates and, and the, some of the characters that we met while Selena was in prison. I think they've got potential for future use in Catwoman stories. But the way this all leads to an ending here where, uh, where, Selena confronts Don Tommaso, who uh, Dar- Dario, Tomcat's father, and basically says to him, "Look, you're the only rational mobster here. I'll tell you what I'll do. I will, uh, I will give you the black glove. The black glove being a connection that you can fence goods through, and uh, that we met in previous issues." I'll give you connections to the Black Love, and even though you'll lose some of your power in Gotham, you'll you'll gain more money because you'll have a more you'll have a more streamlined fencing way to fence your stolen property. And but because you're the you're the most Don Tommaso is not as irrational as the Black Mask, who's causing all this chaos, and some of the other members of the other crime families. So Selena shows that she definitely knows how to manipulate. Uh, uh, mobsters. She knows how to play them. She she knows how they think. So in that respect, I like what Teeny Howard's done in, in in that plot point, which is interesting. And so I like how she has Selena show her intelligence in in understanding the mafia and understanding the the underworld of Gotham, even arguably more than Batman does. But I don't like it was completely. It didn't work for me. The whole prison angle, why she ended up going to prison, the whole Valmont thing, it just didn't work. It didn't really feel believable to me with the Selena that I think I know as a reader. But uh, so I got mixed feelings about it, mixed feelings about it. But I want to give Teeny Howard props for she thinks big, man. I got to give her props. She's not afraid to she's thinking big and she's she goes for it. And she does. She has made me sort of reevaluate Selena Kyle, even though I don't necessarily agree with her interpretation. I can't say I haven't been entertained and even really entertained at different parts of this narrative. So what about yourself? Yeah, I agree. She definitely has softened Selena. And I, I sort of understand it, right? Like Selena, the fact that she killed, I, I sort of take it to the fact that, okay, she killed Valmont, who she had feelings for. Uh, yeah, Selena's a taker. And even though she's in love with Bruce, she never claimed to be in love with Valmont. It was more kind of a lust situation and a kind of a situation of convenience, you know, having intimate relations with him because he was there and she could be with him when she couldn't be with Bruce. And then to have to, you know, when, when the, when it, she came put to the choice of Valmont or Bruce, she kills Valmont. Obviously she's going to choose Bruce over uh, Valmont. But I, I think based on the relationship that she's had recently with Bruce you know, whether you agree with what Tom King did in his Batman run or not, Selena has leaned more toward her uh, heroic heroism recently uh, in her characterization in DC. So you can see how she would be carrying around some guilt for what she did to Valmont. That's been expressly put forward by Tinney in her run. So I sort of take it, if there's any softening of Catwoman, if there's any sort of second guessing, she doesn't quite have the that swagger and that confidence that we've seen her have in the past, it's sort of the fallout of the choice that she made. Now, whether I'm reading too much into it, I'm giving too much creative team, I don't know, but that's how I'm sort of taking it. Cause I do agree with you. Selena is somebody who takes what she wants, doesn't apologize for it. Uh, and doesn't really have much self doubt. That's not what we're getting. Here. You know, seeing Selena sit on the floor of her apartment, you know, feeling sorry for herself. That's not the cat woman that we're used to seeing. So um, I'm okay with doing that. 
as long as eventually we're going to return to to status quo. But it's a way of pushing the character and exploring uh, new aspects of the character. I mean, I'm all for, uh, you know, I've gone on record many times as saying I'm not a fan of the Batman uh, Catwoman relationship. So I, I'd be, you know, perfectly fine with moving away from that, you know, uh, really putting it in the past because like, where is that relationship right now? Right? Like you can't really say it's sort of like, okay, put a pin in it um, and we'll get back to it. They've both agreed they can't be together right now, but who knows what the future might hold. Um, but it's sort of like in a way people are holding their breath, waiting for them to eventually get married. I, I say, I mean, as much as I love Tom King, I just think that that was a mistake to even <laughs> hint that they ever would settle down. Like, I just, I just don't like Selena and Bruce together. Um, it, it's like, it's this forbidden fruit that should never be attainable. Um, cause then once you do, then, then what, right? You have nowhere to go. You've painted yourself into a corner or, or written yourself into a corner, uh, in this case. So yeah. Uh, and hints of them getting married in the future or whatever. I just, I just don't like it. I don't care for it. I mean, could you really imagine like, Bruce and Selena having like the Peter and MJ sort of relationship. Just, <laughs> well, well, right now, Marvelites are quite upset with Marvel with what's going on with uh, Mary Jane and Spider-Man from what I understand. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, 100%, but, but you get what I'm saying. Like, yeah, I do. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, yeah. It just doesn't work. So yeah. anyway, let's move on. Uh, Flash number 799. <clears throat> last issue before 800. Last issue before uh, Jeremy Adams final. Issue, this is written by Adams. We have art by Fernando Passerin, Eau Claire Albert, and Wade Von Grobinger, uh, and Tom Dernick. Colors by Matt Herms and Pete Pantazis. Letters by Rob Lee. Assault on Eternity. Uh, yeah, this is a lot of fun. What are your thoughts? Man, I had my favorite character in this entire issue is Omega Bam Man. Oh my God. I, I, this was such a fun issue. I rem, I, I was reading this at the office when I should have been working. I should have been working on, <laughs> on a client's file, but I was, I was reading this issue and I was just laughing out loud. This is, uh, uh, this is Wall, uh, Wally West, Mr. Terrific, Our Man, Gold Beetle, Phantom Girl, and Omega Bam Man, you know, traveling to the Palace of Eternity to defeat Granny Goodness to rescue the, their, uh, Linda and Wally's newborn child by the name of Wade, named after Mark Wade, uh, as a tribute to Mark Wade. Uh, and, and the, it's, it's absolutely the action and the fun in this issue is just it's insane there's uh mr adam just giant mr adam fighting this giant gorilla and gold beetle and this omega omega bam man that wrestler character i mean he loves the action he goes you know every time he sees action he goes outstanding and it, and i just imagine this this exaggerated uh wrestler type character you know at uh, they're basically about to go into battle against the, these giant intergalactic you know mr adam and this gorilla creature uh to 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 fight them while wally and and mr terrific uh go uh, toward the uh, palace of eternity and gold beetle and and phantom girl and uh, metamorpho uh <laughs> and and this omega batman use plastic man to slingshot themselves into battle and it's just it's insane and it's so much fun and you know once this Mr. Adam is defeated, 
And I have to say, like, when, when this Omega Bam, Omega Bam man and Gold Beetle are fighting this giant gorilla, whatever the hell it is, and Mr. Adam, they're not even showing the, the, the act. They don't actually show the action. It just shows the expressions on the faces of metamorph, of metamorpho, plastic man and phantom girl saying, did he? I've never seen that before. And they're describing things. And, and, and so obviously the action is, is quite intense. And, and even though we're not privy to the action, they're actually telling us what the action is through the those characters as opposed to showing us which is a potential criticism but it brings it does so with humor because gold beetle is having so much fun omega Batman is having so much fun and the the biggest laugh i got is when at the end suddenly the anti-monitor shows up and like if an anti-monitor shows up in any comic in the dc universe you know that you know that you're in trouble you're probably gonna die but what is the reaction to omega batman when he sees the anti-monitor he just screams out outstanding <laughs> he's absolutely ecstatic he gets to fight the anti-monitor <laughs> and even gold beetles excited <laughs> And, oh my God, meanwhile, Metamorpho, Phantom Girl, and Plastic Man, you can tell they're absolutely petrified. But I just, I had so much fun reading this, and I was living vicariously through this Omega Bam Man, and I gotta gotta tell you, man, kudos to Jeremy Adams for making me smile and laugh out loud as I'm reading this. And while that's going on, those are my favorite parts of the issue. But then, of course, if uh, of course we got Wally West himself and Our Man and Mister Terrific, uh, that there's a there's huge revelations in this issue. Huge revelations. They rescue they rescue Wade. They defeat Granny Goodness, and Granny Goodness has other children that she had kidnapped and was raising and training. And perhaps one of the biggest revelations is that she's kidnapped these children. Uh, she's kidnapped these children. One was a child that was a former, was a, a lord of chaos. Another child she stole from uh, in the midst of an undersea attack. So we don't know the origins of that child. And there's one of the children is revealed to be the son of Mr. Terrific, who was actually taken from, uh, taken from his, his mother's womb, which is a huge revelation. And it's a huge revelation. And it's, I, I gotta, it's, it's just, it's incredible because I, when I, when I, to know that Mr. Terrific now has his son back and we got these, we got these other, so we got these three new kids from that are former, I guess, minions of Granny Goodness. We got Wade, we got, uh, we got these we just got further. We got so many additions now. When when you think of the next generation, the legacy characters in the DC universe, let's add them up just in the last year alone. You know, uh, we've got the Lost Children under Jeff Johns. We've got the Green Arrow family with Red Canary and Leon Harper coming back. We've got the Superman family with the Super Twins. We've got the Flash family, Jay, Irie, Wade. We've got these three new kids with from Granny Goodness, uh, Yara Four. we got the daughter of Wonder Woman, Trinity, uh, supposedly, and now uh, when Tom King starts writing Wonder Woman, we got Andy Curry, Jackson Hyde, Gold Beetle. We got all the Lazarus Reign characters. I mean, we really have seen in the last six months to a year, certainly in the last two years, a huge expansion of DC characters. And I got to tell you, this is probably one of the most. Uh, uh, it's 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 amazing uh, the difference that a year can make. Because last year at this time, I wasn't feeling this good about the DC universe, but I, this issue was just, I'm, I'm so happy with this issue. I'm so, I, I just don't want Jeremy Adams to leave this issue, but I got to tell you this at the end of this issue, 
uh, when they, they, they rescue Wade, they, they're going back home. What Jeremy Adams does is brilliant. Uh, Jeremy Adams has stated, uh, he did, uh, he, he did, he's let loose to, he's let lead to a number of people that he did have many flash stories planned before he was taken out of, out of flash. And this issue, uh, before they make it back home, uh, they go on many adventures, uh, the Mr. Terrific, Wally West, and all the all the people, uh, uh, Our Man, Gold Beetle, Phantom Girl, they go on many adventures together, and you can tell they spend, I don't know, it looks like six months to a year, and they got all these other adventures that they went on, but we don't know what those adventures were, so... Uh, but ultimately, uh, he does return uh, to Linda, to the Wally, to his family, with Wade safely in his uh, on his chest. And we know that there's lots of flash adventures that Jeremy Adams probably hopes to tell if he ever comes back to the title, because we have this period of time that Jeremy Adams has incorporated into his story. That if he ever comes back and wants to tell a flash story, he can tell it. And I just thought this was so well done. Jeremy Adams, he had to rework some of these endings. I think it's clear because he was taken off the title and he couldn't tell all the Wally West stories he wanted to tell. Uh, but for, for having to maybe truncate this story and trunk uh, leading into Flash 800, uh, I think this was just such a, a joy of an issue to read and some huge revelations from Mr. Terrific. If you're a fan of Mr. Terrific, he's got his son back now. And, you know, the DC universe continues to grow and man, DC, um, thank you for putting Jeremy Adams at least a consolation prize with him writing Jay Garrick. Now we, we, at least we have that. But I, I, I love this issue. This was uh, this was my favorite comic of the week. To be very blunt about it. But uh, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I loved it. The art was fantastic. Uh, yeah, like you said, Jeremy set himself up. If he ever comes back, he's got <laughs> stories to tell, stories to fill in. Uh, and one thing you you didn't mention. So <clears throat> we see Wally. He rescues Wade. Uh, and, and that was fantastic. The scene where he actually rescues Wade, where he's able, he's able to catch Granny Goodness, even though she has a, a piece of this eternity fragment and supposedly she can keep running forever in the eternity corridor or what have you. And he's not supposed to be able to reach her. And he shows, yeah, I'm, I am the fastest being in the universe. And, you know, because it's his son, anybody who's a parent will know how much you'll push yourself for your kids. He is able to overcome that. Um, and catch her and, you know, gets back on the ship and they're all going back home. And he's in this classic, you know, red and gold flash costume. And then when we see him arrive finally back home um, after the, the whirly gog or whatever it is that, that breaks on the, uh, the fair play ship, they do eventually get back home. He's got the huge bushy beard as Rocky uh, mentioned to show how much time has passed, but he's also, he's no longer wearing the classic flash costume right the red and gold he's back to the silver and red flash costume that we saw when uh dc rebirth happened the brett booth titan series i think jeff johns was the writer on that uh yeah. when it started it's a good point but yeah yeah so interesting like when when did it shift when did it change what exactly happened in that time i guess we'll see and he wasn't gone too long because wade doesn't look that much bigger i mean if i had to nitpick on anything um and it's a minor nitpick but i did notice it and i'll toss it out there because i know jeremy will probably say something to me about it next time i see him uh <laughs> yeah wade got taken when he was only a few days old uh when granny has him granny he looks older than a two-day-old you know looks older looks bigger than a newborn i'll put it that way but you know chalk yeah. it up to comedy what have you but when wally does finally get back to linda he is still very much a, a small child so 
maybe a month or two, certainly enough time for uh, Jeremy to tell any number of stories. Uh, and I hope we get those stories uh, someday. I'm sure Jeremy hopes so as well. So yeah, fantastic issue. Uh, I thought the art was solid. I do, I do wish that it had been Fernando Passerin art throughout, but you know, ever since this, uh, this title went on a biweekly schedule, it's just, I think it's too much to ask for, for one artist to do the whole thing. Um, so not surprised, but yeah, a lot of fun. And we know 800 will be kind of its own thing, anniversary issue. I'm, you know, Jeremy will have stories in there, but there'll be stories by other uh, writers. And then, you know, I guess we'll see. I don't know what cosmic space horror flash means, but that's what we're getting from Cy Spurrier. <laughs> um, but yeah, like, uh, like Rocky mentioned, we are getting the Jay Garrick series with Judy Garrick as well. Uh, we know that Jeremy uh, wrote Flashpoint Beyond, where we first got hints of those lost children. Uh, with Jeff Johns, and then obviously that continued in uh, Jeff Johns' series with Todd Nock, uh, Stargirls and the Lost Children. So now we saw in the final issue of that, Judy uh, reunited with Jay, and now we'll get more of that story uh, of those two. Jay with the daughter that he forgot that he had. So excited to have that. And uh, as much as I'm excited for that and, and happy for Jeremy that he's going to get to tell that story, I'm more excited about what his Green Lantern run has promised based on the first issue. So we'll see how that plays out as well. Uh, all right. Up next, we have Batgirls. This is written by Becky Cloonan and Michael W. Conrad. Robbie Rodriguez on art. Rico Renzi on colors. Becca Carey on letters. <clears throat> We've said this before. Uh, with Robbie Rodriguez taking over the art duties, <clears throat> it feels a little more like the art matches the aesthetic in terms of how mature this story should be and what they're really going for. I really feel like over the last three or four issues, Batgirls has really started to hit its stride. <laughs> you know, go figure that it, it's, it's becoming really enjoyable and, and something I look forward to reading right when it's about to be canceled. Um, I think that the, the, the whole creative team has finally found, found the right balance between exploring the inexperience of these Batgirls, even if it doesn't 100% make sense because Cassandra Kane has been around for a long time and she shouldn't be, she shouldn't come across as quite, as young and inexperienced as she does here at times. Stephanie Brown, you know, sure, because she was never actually trained, at least not to the extent, certainly, that Cassandra Kane was. On Oracle is Oracle. You know, Barbara Gordon knows her, her stuff and is kind of the mentor for these two. But uh, I'm intrigued by sort of the societal and social aspect of the Batgirls here, um, how they've sort of got their neighborhood of the hill to sort of stand up for them in this issue and say, Hey, we're all Batgirls with these snipers that are out there uh, killing people and saying that they're doing it because the Batgirls put themselves above the law. They want to back themselves in. Uh, Barbara Gordon Oracle creates a deep fake video to show Stephanie Brown and Cassandra Kane turning themselves in. Uh, and the people, the citizens, the inhabitants of the neighborhood of the Hill take it upon themselves to go out to the streets and protest saying, we're all Batgirls. They're here. They're a good force. Uh, we need to, you know, find these snipers and take them out. Um, they're they're the bad guys, not the Batgirls. And I enjoy that aspect of the story. I also enjoyed seeing Batman show up and talk about um, how proud he is, how far these Batgirls have come. Because despite any any uh, sort of creative hiccups or sort of wonkiness in tone, we have seen growth for these characters throughout the, the series. Um and I, I do, in a way, feel like it's a little bit of a wasted opportunity. Like if you had put uh, a really 
if you'd put an artist on, it doesn't even have to be an A-list artist, but if you if DC had decided to put an artist on this title that was just more house style, because even Robbie Rodriguez is not really in the house style of DC, but if you'd put an artist that was more in the house style, I think this series would have been a lot more successful. I think it would have found its footing much quicker. It really sort of floundered like the first six or eight issues. Like think back to the the car, the Bondo car and how wonky that felt. And yeah, yeah it just, it really, it really struggled uh, to begin with. And, you know, it's, it wasn't surprising to hear when it was canceled. Um, and it's too bad because clearly uh, there's something here, but whether or not uh, they'll bring it back or, you know, what Batgirl title we may have coming up later down the line, I, I don't know. Um, but probably best to, to kind of put this one out to pasture. Um, but at least it's going to end on a high note. So what are your thoughts on it, Rocky? I, I don't have much to add. Uh, the, yeah, it's, it's gotten slightly better, not much better, slightly better. Uh, and it's because of the, I think the, the art it's, it's actually, uh, you know, I guess an editor finally decided to, you know, borrow somebody else's IQ and figure out, Oh, well, why don't we have these Adult characters actually drawn to look like adult characters, and not have a not have a ch- children's artist uh, draw this comic book, uh, and it it's made a world of difference. And it tone and art matters. And boy, when you want to, if you want to have an understanding of just how how catastrophically uh, bad uh, a poor combination of writer and artist is, just re- read the first whatever fifteen issues of uh, Batgirls. Wow, and but you know. I like this. This this was a better issue. Uh, it, it's nice that that the Batgirls, Cassandra Kane and Stephanie Brown, uh, they've 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 grown in their relationship. They've uh, they you know as as roommates and as uh, fellow allies. They've they've fought. They've taken out a number of uh, villains in 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 this brief in this brief like eighteen issue run. And it ends with there's there's this a CC character that's likely the 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 gunman who is wants to. Wants them to basically give up being bad girls, and not really sure. You know, Oracle has a plan. She, like you said, she used deepfake technology to try to orchestrate the uh, the so-called arrest or, or the surrendering of the bad girls to take them off the playing field. But unfortunately, unfortunately, this Grace O'Hallahan, who who likes the bad girls and wants to support her, she's uh, she's doing a parade day to so, salute as a tribute to the bad girls. Unfortunately, that's likely going to call out the gunman, and we don't know who this or the sniper is. Is, but it's likely that Grace's life is in danger, and we're gonna we're gonna see it play out next issue. But you know, I mean, better late than never. But at least at least this series will go out on a higher note than it began. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, all right, up next we have Titans number one. This is written by Tom Taylor. Art is by Nicholas Scott. Colors by Net Quack. Letters by uh, Wes Abbott. What'd you think of this? Um. Okay, just a moment here. Gotta... Um, yeah, I was I, I was disappointed with this. I thought uh, I think Tom Taylor is. I was uh, scratch that. I wasn't just disappointed with this. I was very disappointed with this. I uh, I thought this is you know, and I even though everyone who listens to us knows that we talk spoilers, this is a fairly big spoiler. But at the same time, I can't believe I'm going to say this, but. I really just really didn't care for for this. Uh, there there was this felt so derivative, so so blah to me. It starts off with Wally West, he's been shot in the heart and he's going to die, and at the end I guess he's dead. 
So Wally West is dead. So I guess Tom Taylor, somebody said, nobody can treat Wally West worse than Tom Tom King did in Heroes in Crisis. And Tom Taylor said, hold my beer, matey. And uh, there you go. Uh, and so, yeah, we, we got this. We got this. This feels so forced. This feels so ridiculous. Most of this issue is utterly boring. It's so boring. Beautiful art by Nicola Scott. Beautiful art, but utterly boring issue. I, I just... I can't believe how boring this issue is. It's clearly all set up and it doesn't need to be. Who needs a setup issue for Titans? This feels so small. They're supposed to be. And then, and then we get a tease at the end of the issue that brother blood's going to be the next issue. Did, did Tom Taylor miss the memo that this was, they're supposed to replace the justice league. They're, they're not replacing young justice. They're replacing the justice league. So they, give them, give them, give them an A level threat as a villain, but no, we're supposed to look forward to brother blood. Come on, man. This isn't it. This is Titans, but this is, they're, they're supposed to take on a level threats. And this feels so small to me. And I'm just so disappointed. And I mean, again, the art's beautiful. We get a beautiful new Titans tower in, in Bloodhaven, uh, built upon the same spot where the Bloodhaven penitentiary used to be. We saw that play out in Nightwing. But unfortunately, what I really, what I was, my worst fears have been realized in this first issue. And, and, and that is that this is all, again, there's some character moments here that are really good. And you can throw, I can throw compliments that, yeah, he understands these characters. But, you know, this is, this is, Titans are supposed to replace the Justice League. We need a really good plot. We need a good plot. And, you know, frankly, I, there was, there was already a DC cartoon that dealt with how Reverse Flash was shot and killed and he stayed alive after being shot at Flashpoint for, for a very long time. I, I already got in my head how Wally West is likely still alive. I don't believe for a second that he's actually dead. Of course he isn't. But it also, it actually pisses me off because there was that rumor for the longest time that Tom Taylor wanted to write The Flash. And uh, I don't know, all of a sudden Jeremy Adams is not, you know, is not writing The Flash. And of course, Tom Taylor wanted, he wants to kill him off in Titans. And so, well, we know who has the exclusive contract and who doesn't. And uh, it's just, you know, that's me engaging in conspiracy theory, by the way. I don't know any of that. I'm just like throwing that out there. This, But this is why this whole thing just sort of like, rub me the wrong way and just such a contrived pathetic scene action scene where they're fighting a giant gorilla at a nuclear plant and then peacemaker shows up and says that offers them he, he says the president wants them to work for he, offering them a job with the president because the president wants the, the titans to work for the government Come on. When it's really Amanda Waller. Well, well, I'm sorry. Is Amanda Waller president? I mean, I, I just, who's the president of the DCU? Is it Donald Trump? I'm, I'm, I'm actually just, I'm, I'm asking for a friend. I'm just, this, this whole thing just seems ridiculous to me. And it just, the whole thing just rubbed me the wrong way. And beautiful art, beautiful art. But I got to tell you, man, I, this just seems so, uh, by the numbers and boring, boring, boring. I mean, come on, man. And then I'm supposed to, we got to wait, we get to wait six, seven issues to find out who shot Wally West. And I, I, I don't, I find myself not even caring. I mean, I've already forgotten about Heartless over in Nightwing. Maybe it was Heartless. Maybe he did it. Um, but, uh, in any event, I just, I just thought this thing was a huge disappointment plot wise. I was looking for a plot here. We, we got the, we got the, we got the real good character development over in Nightwing. I thought Titans was at least going to elevate this, give us good plotting here. And we don't have that. And I was just, uh, 
I'm just, I'm just, I'm just so disappointed. And uh, I suspect you disagree with me, but uh, tell me, I'm curious to hear your thoughts. Well, wait, I, I, I liked it. You didn't like it? Is that? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that, that's right. Yeah, yeah. You got that, did you? You disagree. You didn't like it. I liked it. Is it uh, a little slow? Yeah, I'll say it's a little slow. Is it a little setup? Uh, it's actually a lot of setup. You're right. The art is absolutely gorgeous. I could say I almost don't care about the plot if I get to see art this beautiful from Nicholas Scott. But there is plot there. It, and, you know, I take it with a grain of salt when it's a Tom Taylor book because I know I'm going to sacrifice some plot and some story momentum for character moments. And I know that going in and I'm okay with that. And we get some great character moments and not just character moments that you might expect, like relationship between Raven and Beast Boy, which we, you know, it was all about, um, you know, Nightwing and Starfire back in the, the classic Wolfman Perez Titans. And, and maybe this Titans will be sort of defined by the relationship between Beast Boy and Raven. And I'm perfectly fine with that. Uh, it's not just those character moments that you might expect, like, you know, exploring their relationship as it's sort of, you know, in its fledgling stages, but also character moments like what's going on with Tempest. I love that Tempest shows up here. I love seeing Nicholas Scott draw Tempest. And I love that he turns Nightwing down and Donna Troy. These are two of his oldest friends. They've been through battles together. They've been through wars with each other. What is it that, that, and who is it that Garth is working with that he's willing to turn the Titans down? Um, Tempest knows what's at stake. It's, it's Amanda uh, yeah, Waller, he, I'm sure. Pretty <laughs> well could be, but I, I love it as he, you know, dives into the ocean. It's like good luck with your 25 percent of the the earth, right? Yeah. The ocean covered 71 percent. So again, these are these are moments that are plot defining character moments, I think. Uh, but we might we just don't have the context for them. So you read, you know, you read this thing, you know, six issues down the line, seven issues down the line. And you may come to realize there's more plot here than you thought. Um, but yeah, we know Wally West is not dead, uh, 100%. But I'm still interested in the mystery of it. You know, as long you know, as long as it doesn't drag out too long. We talked about that a little earlier in the episode. Um, but yeah, I, I enjoyed this. Was it a little bit of setup? Actually, it was a lot of setup, like I said. But to be expected. And them fighting Titanio. I thought was was fun. I can't remember the last time I saw Titanio, giant rat uh, looking thing. Um, and yeah, I thought it was fun. I thought it showcased the the abilities uh, of Cyborg really really well. Um, the the abilities of the Titans themselves, how formidable they are. I did it did kind of bug me a little bit that so we know that uh, the Beast Boy can change right, change in any animal. And I'm never quite sure, I mean, has it been explained? Like, where does his extra mask go when he changes into a little tiny mouse? Where does the extra mask come from when he transforms into this giant creature here? So yeah. kind of take that with a little bit of <laughs> grain of salt. Um, we are told that his eye that he lost in Dark Crisis, uh, we're going to find out the story of how he got it back in Tales of the Teen Titans number four, which is an upcoming six-issue series that will be coming later this year. Uh, I guess as far as... Um, Beast Boy and Cyborg sharing a body, that that's just gone. Like, forget about that. They're never even going to bother to explain how that was resolved, which <laughs> that was a huge thing when it happened. Remember, we were like, wait, what? Yeah. I mean, it 
work and felt wonky and everybody hated it. So I guess we'll just ignore it. Um, but yeah, that's neither here nor there. Uh, but I did enjoy this. I'm curious to see where it's going. And yeah, conspiracy, Amanda Waller, blah, blah, blah. God, I hope we don't get too much of her in, in this. I get enough of her in uh, in everywhere else she's showing up in the DCU. And I'm also getting a little tired of seeing Peacemaker show up everywhere as well. Like I get, I get it, DC. He had a hit TV show. It doesn't mean he needs to be in every comic. Uh, like don't – that's a Marvel move where something hits and then you all of a sudden, oh, Black Panther is coming out. Let's have six Black Panther series. Oh, Iron Man was wildly successful. Let's have six uh, Iron Man series. No. Slow slow your roll on Peacemaker. Uh, we, we've seen more than enough. Uh, all right. Let's move on. I, I think I feel another rant coming on. Uh, Wonder Woman number 799. <laughs> Becky Clunan and Michael W. coming out of the writers. Aletha Martinez, Mark Morales, Megan Hetrick, Juan Ferreira, Terry Dodson, Rachel Dodson, and Paulina Ganeshaw are the artists. Bonvillan, Dodson, and Ferreira handle the colors. Pat Brosso on letters. <clears throat> this is uh, Whatever Happened to the Warrior of Truth, Part 1. Um, and I guess there's only going to be two parts because I can't imagine it goes past 800. But anyway, what would you think of this? Well, Here I, I- – <laughs> I'm, I'm not going to, you know, uh, I don't think this is going to turn into a rant. I, you know, I, this issue, we know that issue 800 is coming. And, and so we know at some point that this clean rads are just wrapping up whatever story they want to tell here. We know that we just finished Revenge of the Gods. And apparently it's just revealed this issue that Wonder Woman fell us, you know, apparently was really tired after Revenge of the Gods and she decided to have a nap on Themyscira and she just can't wake up and she just doesn't wake up. And meanwhile, Wonder Woman is dreaming while Wonder Woman is falling, is, is asleep and dreaming. The entire issue consists of uh, various ar- artists, all of the artists, there's a whole slew of artists here. All of the artists that have worked on Wonder Woman since Clunrad's ran began, Aletha Martinez, uh, Mark uh, Mark Morales, Megan Hetrick, uh, Juan, Juan Ferreira, and Terry Dodson, uh, they all take turns drawing various, various, the various dreams that the various characters have. Ida uh, uh, Candy dreams that she's in uh, World War II and a member of the Holiday Girls, which is a sort of a nice Golden Age callback. Steve Trevor dreams that he's fighting Nazis in World War II as a World War II pilot, and he meets Wonder Woman. That's drawn by Terry Dodson. Uh, we got Ziggy dreaming that he's fighting alongside Wonder Woman at Ragnarok, which is the final battle be- at the end of time when everything's just, you know, leading to the ultimate battle. We got Queen Nubia, uh, who, uh, who has a dream that she meets young Diana, and this is where they incorporate, I think they very nicely incorporate the Young Diana backup series in this as well. So the Young Diana backup actually is incorporated into this particular story in the form of a dream. And, and all this is, is a way of all these, every, all of Wonder Woman's, the main cast from Ada Candy, Steve Trevor and Ziggy and Queen Nubia, they're all having these dreams, uh, while at the same time, Wonder Woman is apparently having dreams as well. And to what end, for what purpose, we don't really know all of these dreams. There's, there's nothing that unifies these dreams. It, it, it literally just seems like an excuse for these artists to draw, to, to, to do, to pay homage to different iterations of Wonder Woman in World War II, 
the Dodsons get to draw Nazis, so that's cool. So it's kind of cool to see. We get to see the holiday girls, except with a black head of candy instead of a white one. As a, so as a nice callback to the Golden Age with a twist. Ziggy, we, we, we get a callback, I guess, to him in, in Clunrad's first story arc where she first met, met Ziggy and they, they fought in, uh, in Asgard. And so there's some nice callbacks here to both Wonder Woman lore in, in particular and also in the Clunrad's run, generally speaking. And wh- what about all these dreams? How are all these dreams linked? We've got no idea. We just know that this is part one of a story arc called Whatever Happened to the Warrior of Truth. Well, Wonder Woman's asleep and she's not waking up. And what does any of that have to do with all those dreams? I've got really no idea. And there is no indication as to who the villain is, what's causing it. Uh, I, I got to say, it's it's really, it, it just it just it's very underwhelming. I if you I like the art, I like the this is one this is one situation where having multiple artists actually suits the narrative because it's they're all having different dreams and people dream and you, it makes sense that they would dream in different styles and different, different looks and different kinds of uh, artistic renditions. So it, it works in that respect, but it's more convenience. And while it might suit the narrative, the narrative is just plain boring. Um, you know, in fact, this is more boring than Titans number one. I'll give it that. But, uh, wow. but wow. <laughs> uh, that's saying I, I, something. I gotta, yeah, I'm never a big fan of a bunch of artists. Yes, it doesn't make sense story-wise. Yes, it makes sense story-wise. But um, this guy, it sort of feels like, okay, they had this idea for 800 that they were going to have a bunch of different artists. It's going to be an oversized issue. Well, let's just extend that to 799 as well. And they are bringing on a lot of artists that um, have recently worked on, you know, Paulina Ganeshaw doing the young Diana gets to be in the main story here. Um which feels kind of wonky in, in and of itself. So yeah, I have no idea where this is going either. I, you say it's boring. It's like, I, I don't think we have enough to, to know what the heck's going on. Like, yes, everybody's having dreams about wonder woman in different iterations in different eras. And wonder woman herself is asleep with the power of, you know, her new divine powers and can't wake up. And that's literally all we know. And you could have technically done that in one page. You could have had one splash page showing yeah. Wonder Woman asleep, not being able to wake up. And somebody could have said, yeah, she can't wake up. And all her friends, all her acquaintances are all having strange dreams. <laughs> That's it. That is literally it. Yeah. That is literally um, Is the art interesting? Is it cool? Yeah. I mean, I, I'm a fan of some of these artists more than others. Terry Dodson's World War II, uh, Steve Trevor dream was really interesting. The Paulina Ganeshaw interests me less because it's just not a style that I typically enjoy. So, yeah, it, is it boring? I, I, unfortunately, yeah, a little bit. <laughs> because I, I don't have enough information to be invested in the story. You haven't made me care about these dreams because I have literally no context for why they are dreaming this. Yeah. So I, I don't know. I mean, the one on YouTube, Rocky's got the Juan Ferreira pages. I'm a huge Juan Ferreira fan. It was great to see him drawing Wonder Woman. And, you know, she's alongside Siggy. They're fighting at Ragnarok, end of the world, like Rocky was saying. And it's fantastic, especially at the end where they defeat, I guess it's a frost giant. And they're kind of standing on <laughs> on his head as he's kind of laying there defeated. Yeah, it's a great image. It's, it's fun. Uh, beautiful colors. But again, like why, 
why do I care? I, I don't know why I'm supposed to care. <laughs> now, all that being said, with all the great art inside the book, the best art from this book at all, out, out of all the variant covers, out of all the interiors or whatever, is the Raza variant cover. It's got this reddish orange hue and it's Wonder Woman with like some light shining down on her. And it looks very photorealistic. Like if Wonder Woman existed in real life, this is what she would look like. She's got some nice biceps, uh, but she's still <laughs> very beautiful, but very powerful. Uh, this might be one of the best Wonder Woman covers I've ever seen. It is far and away the best cover. And it's just amazing. Like I, I might have to, it's so good. I might have to buy two copies of it. It's so fantastic. Yeah. It's a, it's a little bit more of a muscular Wonder Woman too, with a, a bite, like she's got a bicep there of a, of a man almost, but it, there's a, there's a more of a majestic, almost feminine um, bodybuilder type of image. So I, it's unique. You don't actually quite see it. Wonder Woman quite drawn like that, built quite like that very often. And it's so, like you said, it's so realistic. It's, it's beautifully rendered. Yeah, it's fantastic. <clears throat> okay, excuse me. Last work we're going to talk about, last single issue this week, Superboy, The Man of Tomorrow, Chapter 2, written by Kenny Porter. Uh, Janoy Lindsay does the art and the colors. Lucas Catoni on letters. Uh, I enjoyed this for the most part. I'm not the biggest fan of uh, Lindsay's style of art, but this is uh, Connor feeling like Connor, feeling more like the classic uh, Superboy that I know from back even before the Jeff Johns Titans run. Um, I love the uh, dialogue boxes that we get in the, uh, in the issue from Lucas Gattoni, how they have little stitches uh, around the boxes, kind of a throwback to his old denim jacket. Uh, and I, I just thought it was a lot of fun. I love the voice that Kenny Porter is giving uh, Connell and this idea that he's out on his own. It's what he wanted. He's stepping up, but there's still a little bit of swagger, a little bit of arrogance. Um, and there are times where he's put in his place by his circumstances. So it's a good balance. You know, for somebody who's been around as long as he has, there, there might be some Superboy fans out there who might say, well, he, you know, he knows better than this. Uh, he, he should be more mature, more experienced. That very well may be the case, but I haven't read a lot of that. Of, of that sort of version of, of Connell. So I can't speak to that. Uh, what I can speak to is this is new reader friendly. And for someone like myself, who isn't heavily invested in that Jeff Johns run of teen Titans, where it's the, the black t-shirt and jeans, Superboy, um, that this is working for me. So uh, I, I'm really curious to see where it goes. I like the fact that he's out in space doing his own thing uh, because he's hundred percent right. He is redundant on earth between uh, John Kent and Kara and the, uh, the, the the super kids or whatever they're calling them, super twins, the kids from War World who have uh, Kryptonian powers as well. So, yeah, get him off of Earth. Get him out on his own. Uh, introducing some new characters and what have you. Uh, Kenny Porter gets a chance to, to show us some of the uh, alien races in the DC universe, of which there are plenty. So that's uh, a lot of fun as well. So uh, I, I'm I'm really enjoying this so far. What do you think, Rocky? Uh, it's I, I think it's it's okay. It's uh, I think it's a little bit uh, dare I say predictable, but at the same time, I this does remind me of the 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 classic Connor 
uh, Connor Kent that first arrived before before the Jeff Johns iteration with the with the teen his version on the Teen Titans with the with just the black shirt with the red S. Um, I, you know, I, I like the Cosmeteers. I think there's a lot of potential there. I think there's a lot of potential of this Cosmeteers. I love that name, Cosmeteers. Uh, these new characters, Pyra, Rocherza, and Trav. Uh, it, it's a classic. It, last issue ended with the classic misunderstanding. Uh, the, the Cosmeteers thought that's, that Connor was uh, working for the, the, uh, the Dominators and the Kuns, and that's actually not the case. The Dominators were actually surprised to pleasantly surprised to discover that Connor might be killed by the uh, Cosmeteers. So there was, there was a couple of funny moments in the issue and Connor brings his morality uh, that he's, you know, that he's obviously learned from, from Superman to, to the scene. The Cosmeteers have no problem using lethal force and uh, you know, Connor does help them, but he does, he does show them in the issue that you don't have to, when they befriend each other and they, Cosmeteers discover and they do their research and find out, ah, yes, this is Connor. He really is from Earth. And we, when they discovered that there's no, that he's on their side. And then they learn from Connor that, you know, you don't need to use lethal force. And Connor steps up to the plate. And by, by the end of the issue, he's more of a, he is probably a little bit more of a leader uh, than he was at the beginning. And it's clear that, um, it's clear that, um, uh, he's, that I'm not sure where this is going. Not a not a heck of a lot happens this issue because basically they just pre- Superboy just befriends the Cosmeteers and then by the time they realize they're on the same side, they're, the 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 Cosmeteers sh- ship, which is called the Ripper, kind of a cool name, is attacked by the Dominators. And I like the fact that uh, his telekinesis ability, Connor uses it as a shield to protect the ship from. So he's actually the shield that is protecting the ship from being destroyed from uh, Dominator attack. And so I thought it was kind of cool. I thought it was. Uh, I think uh, Kenny Porter was. Uh, I think uh, was uh, doing his best portrayal of an imagination connoisseur in some of the plot points in, in some of the scenes here. I thought. I think he's having a lot of fun. I think the artist Janoy Lindsay is also having some fun with the art as well. I thought that the design for some of these aliens is kind of cool uh, as well and uh, i yeah so it, it's in it, it's it's cool it's it's uh i actually like the idea i do think connor kent is a redundancy i think a lot of superman characters are a redundancy quite frankly but connor kent i kind of like the idea of keeping him out in space you know have him uh have him be the space Superman, have him have fun out in space and team up with Lobo and have some fun. Yeah. That's what I'd like to see. But uh, in any event, I, I, it's, it's, you know, not bad, not bad, not my favorite of the week by any stretch, but uh, Kenny, Kenny Porter, uh, he's a young up and coming writer and he keeps getting better. uh, And he's, he's slowly paying his dues at DC as he should. And uh, looking forward to what he has to write in the future. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, well, Lobo Space Dolphins and Superman Lost, you didn't yeah. seem to like that. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Maybe if it's Connor, maybe if it's Connor uh, it'll work for you. So anyway, that does it for the, the single issues this week. As I said, there are a few collections. Uh, in case anybody hasn't read Flashpoint, if you're a DC fan, you've had your head in the sand for the last 20 years. There is a new Flashpoint, Flashpoint trade paperback that collects the five issues of Flashpoint. Uh, there's also the first issue of the Black Adam series. We just talked about issue number 11. Uh, Volume 1, which collects issues 1 through 6, is out this week. And then uh, Flash, the Fascist Man Alive, which collects the three-issue official movie tie-in 
um, which I we I read the first issue, didn't really speak to me. Maybe it's because I didn't know what the movie was going to be about. Uh, maybe it's something I'll read after I, I go and see the film. Um, but anyway, if you want to read it, it does tie into the film. Uh, written by Ken, the uh, writer we were just talking about, Kenny Porter, uh, Jason Howard on art. So that's out this week as well. Uh, well, we know your uh, favorite book of the week, Rocky. You want to remind everybody what it was? Uh, yes, it was absolutely. It was, it was The Flash. It was The Flash. And I think I can probably guess your pick of the week, but uh, you go ahead and say it. Uh, yeah, I'm going with The Vigil. <laughs> I'm yeah, going with The pick. Vigil. One. Uh, yeah, I mean, this is probably the most fun I've had reading a comic in, in a long time. I thought it was excellent. Probably the best comic I've read since um, probably Riddler One Bad Day. I, I really, really thought it was that good. So I hope I'm not overselling it. I hope nobody picks it up and is like, what is this guy talking about? This book sucks. Uh, I was just, yeah, it, it blew me away. It really captured my imagination. So uh, shout out to uh, Ram V and, uh, and Sharma, the artist, for doing a fantastic job. So uh, that's going to do it for this episode, everybody. We appreciate you joining us as always. Don't forget to head over to YouTube if you have not already and subscribe to Rocky's channel. Just do a search for Comic Space Boom! Exclamation point. Once you're there, you know what to do. Subscribe, ring the notification get notification bell, leave some comments below. All that really helps with our visibility and giving us access to, uh, to more shows and artists and, uh, and content. Uh, conversely, if you check us out on YouTube all the time and you want to listen to some of our audio-only content, backlog of uh, interviews and convention coverage and what have you, just go to wherever you get your podcast, do a search for The Comic Source, and subscribe. So that's going to do it for this episode. We appreciate the support as always, and we'll talk to you next time. Catch you later. You can find The Comic Source Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or whichever podcasting app you prefer. Please tell all your friends about us, subscribe, and rate us. The ratings really help with our visibility and our ability to reach new listeners, especially five-star reviews on Apple. Also be sure to visit us at lrmonline.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover all our other great pop culture content. If you want to email us, the email address is thecomicsourceblog at gmail.com, or you can follow us on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash thecomicsource. Do a search for The Comic Source on Facebook and Instagram to follow us on those social platforms. All three spots are great places to find out when we release new episodes as well as follow all our convention coverage. So once again, we want to thank everyone for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.